When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Greetings, scholar warriors and fellow travelers. This is CJ, your Renaissance man in this new, dark and ever-darkening age in which we find ourselves. Back with another dose of Dangerous History. Yes, I know my episode frequency has been pretty bad the last few months, but I'm hoping to turn that around starting this month. As I've gotten fairly settled into my new home, still working on my home office, though I've got a lot still of unpacking and reorganization or should I say organization, to complete until it's finally finished, but it's at least at the point where it's pretty functional just day to day. Albeit a little bit unkempt in appearance. So in this episode, I'm presenting you with a conversation I had last weekend over the Zoom with good friend and fellow history podcaster Alexander Rader von Sternberg of the podcast History Impossible, which is one of the relatively few history podcasts that I actually listen to. Most of the many history podcasts out there are either too superficial, too boringly establishment, or just not very well done. Or some combination thereof, and therefore I am quite a snob when it comes to history podcasts. But Alex's show History Impossible is one of the few on my shortlist that I actually do subscribe to in my podcatcher. Anyway, a few weeks back, Alex messaged me on social media and floated the idea of having a conversation to record in some fashion about the overall idea that the United States is going through some sort of major realignment that's bigger and more encompassing than just a simple change of political party system or something like that. So I took him up on the offer and this conversation, which runs, I think, around two hours and 45 minutes is the result. And so I present it for your listening pleasure. We go all over the place and pretty deep, talking about historical parallels, talking about possible ways this could play out, and really trying to dig deep and get at the root of things and not stay, you know, trapped on the surface where most people's discourse and understanding remains. And I always enjoy talking with Alex. He is... My favorite kind of person to have a conversation with, whether on or off the record. And what I mean by that is I most enjoy and feel I get the most benefit out of talking to someone whose overall ideas and ideology and perspective and worldview and so forth are like a Venn diagram of mine where there's a fair amount of overlap, but there's also some important divergences that way. You get that baby bear's porridge just right 
you know, because if you're just talking to somebody whose Venn diagram circle like completely overlaps with you, it can be kind of boring because it's just sort of like each of you just constantly saying everything the other person said is brilliant without a whole lot of questions, comments, taking things in a different direction, whatever. It's like, you know, having a conversation with a clone. On the other hand, if you have a conversation with somebody who has no overlap with you on the Venn diagram of how you see the world and how you think about things, that is often extremely frustrating because it's basically like the two of you are speaking different languages. It's like one of you is speaking Portuguese and the other is speaking Mandarin. And so to even start to find enough common ground to even have a coherent conversation is often very difficult. And if you've ever listened to the first time that Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris had a conversation, that to me is a good example where there's like so much divergence that it takes forever to get anywhere in terms of having any sort of uh, meaningful back and forth. You know, if you're not even in fundamental agreement on basic definitions of terms and things like this. But anyway, I enjoyed the conversation very much, and I know you will too, and I would urge anybody who's not already a listener to History Impossible to go check it out, throw it in your podcatcher. You will enjoy it. And it gives you something else high quality to listen to in between DHP episodes. All right. So since you initially, um, you know, sparked the idea for having this conversation, I wanted to get it rolling by asking you um, what exactly you have in mind when you talk about that we're in a potential realignment sort of a phase in the United States. Like, What sorts of things specifically do you mean? Because I think this is something that can have potentially a lot of different aspects to it. Right. Um I think it, 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 when I think of realignment, I think of it as a sort of just sort of changing in what the core values. Well, it really is. Yeah, it's top down. It's like or bottom up, really. It's core values up to specific policies. And I think that there is a shift in priorities in both major mainstream uh, political camps that we currently have. Um, and we can define those. Uh, as I, I don't know, we could probably just call it progressive versus conservative to keep it simple. Um, there's probably a little more nuance in there that we can unpack, but I, I think that, yeah, it's a shift in values and I see it as part of a historical American trend because we've gone through it several times. There's like a whole Wikipedia page on it and there's a lot of debate on when these realignments happened. I honestly, though, I think the thing that inspired me most is just all the conversations you and I have had, which by the way, I think this is our fifth collaboration we've done. Technically I've been on your show twice. You've been on my show once. And uh, we did that ripples of history with Daniele Bolelli. So yeah, this this is a record for me, I think. Um, But uh, yeah, it's from the conversations we've had and from what you've said, especially in your Woodrow Wilson series about uh, well, you've used the term progressivism 4.0, 3.0, 2.0, 1.0, and that just has struck a chord with me that I think that the last realignment was the progressive realignment that we currently live in, and that was in approximately 1912, but it got going 
you know, before that by many decades. So it, it just struck me as like this sort of interesting pattern. And I sort of was just thinking, like, why does America feel so politically chaotic right now? Well, it was politically chaotic in the 19-teens. It was politically chaotic in the 19th century. And it was politically chaotic really since the beginning in a lot of ways. It just ebbs and flows. I I just got done doing an episode about um, – um, well, well, it was about a lot of things. It was about Savitri Devi namely, but about the sort of – worldview to which she subscribed and to which influenced at some level the Nazis, which is a cyclical view of history. And I, you know, went out of my way to say, I don't buy cycles. I just don't think that that's how history works. Just like I don't think that history is a progression either. I think it's just a process of interactions. And it's funny that I said that because really what I'm describing right now is kind of a cycle, but I think that might be baked into something deeper in the American political DNA possibly set out by the founding fathers. It just seems inevitable to me that we have long periods of political stability and then some kind of what well, usually it seems to me to be a populist backlash that arises for various reasons that then turns into a fundamental realignment of priorities and values within the two major camps. Yeah. Okay. So that that's sort of what I was expecting um, something like that, as far as what you're going to say, that this, you mean something that's deeper than, than merely like a shift of political party system. That's, that's goes, it includes a political shift, but it goes far beyond that and includes cultural aspects. And as you were saying, values and, and like broadly ideology, not just party affiliation or, or one stance on certain particular issues, but like a more fundamental thing. Um, l- let me throw something out there as I've been thinking about this in the last few days, you know, leading up to this conversation. Um, I was thinking about in, in my view, there's multiple kind of for lack of a better term, pendulums or cycles happening simultaneously throughout American history. And they're not all on the same rhythm, but I think every now and then a bunch of them will experience a change at roughly around the same time. And that perhaps that is what drives this more profound uh, sort of realignment you're talking about today. So, uh, you know, I was just sort of brainstorming and jotting down. So to me, the way I think about it, you've got, some sort of a generational cycle happening. Like I, I don't, I don't treat Strauss Howe, for example, in like a fundamentalist way where I take it as like the gospel truth, but I do think there's something to a lot of what they're saying because it's a good hypothesis. I, yeah, I mean, I was saying to Daryl Cooper actually on Twitter that I think it's a good starting point, just not a good concluding statement. And there's been attempts to try to, that's the problem I have though, is that with generational or cyclical theory is that, all the people who write about it seem to be trying to confirm it rather than disconfirm it. Uh, um, uh, Peter Turchin and um, I forget his first name, but Nefedov, uh, their book, Secular Cycles, that I've only started. I haven't finished it, so I can't speak to the whole thing, but they seem more intent on proving the hypothesis. And uh, then you have like the billionaire Ray Dalio, who literally created an algorithm to try to prove it, but he was just basing it on credit cycles or something, which I don't, I think that's way too reductive. For history, but anyway, yeah, I, I I see what you mean, yeah. So, you know, I I think there is some sort of a generational rhythm, though. I I, I think there's something to right. it. Um, then also, 
one that we've spoken about before is the the religious pendulum where it seems like mm-hmm. in American history there'll be a few generations in a row where there's an overall decrease in religiosity and then there'll be a, a few generations in a row where there's an increase in religiosity and that kind of swings back and forth and you know each each time there's a an awakening period where there's an uptick in religiosity it, it's a different kind of there's a different flavor to it you know e- each awakening period has its own kind of theology and ideology and its own political implications so you know as as we've talked about before um, if you look at the Great Awakening as just the latest, <laughs> you know, distinctive Great Awakening um, that, you know, ostensibly is not religious, but it doesn't take long of objective looking at. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. it, it's literally the most religious thing that I've seen in the last like 10 yeah, years. Yeah, I mean, it's it's dogmatic, <laughs> fundamentalist and evangelical all at the same time. So anyway, that, that's the second sort of cycle I thought, you know. You can sort mm-hmm. of see working back and forth throughout American history. Um, the third one is the shift of party system, um, which I've mm-hmm. talked about, you know, where you have the first party system and then it kind of breaks down and then a second party system emerges after it and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. And then another one that occurred to me and probably, you know, if I thought about this long enough, I could come up with a bunch more. Uh, but but the fourth one that occurred to me that's probably also happening um, is economic cycles. And here I don't mean like the boom bust cycle so much as I mean like different phases of maybe for lack of a better term, different industrial revolutions, you know, so you have like the first industrial revolution, which is like the steam power. Um, and a lot of it's actually light industry, like textiles and things. And then you have the second industrial revolution, more kind of starting in the 1870s where, you know, it's more about electricity and chemicals and heavier industry, like making giant oil, eventually, exactly, making yeah. giant things out of steel yeah, petroleum and chemicals and things start to be more of a factor, um, you know, and then y- you could all these things you could kind of, you know, experts could disagree about exactly where the different lines are sure. between the different phases or whatever. But, you know, for sure, um, you could argue that the the economic paradigm we've been in since maybe about the 1990s, right, where the Internet emerges and, and becomes, you know, um, not just uh, a major aspect of the economy, but now now it's a major aspect of of our social lives in in just about every way. Um, and you know, are we? And that's why are are we headed towards a fourth industrial revolution? As as uh, the wonderful right. Klaus Schwab would, would would tell us, right? And- <laughs> what, what does he envision? I mean, I guess like I I haven't. I mean, Klaus Schwab just he he literally looks like a supervillain, but he uh, and, and talks like one yes. too. But he um. But what does he mean by four? What other industry is there? I mean, I I recently saw the. One millionth, and I and I do have my fingers crossed that this is true. But it's been said since like the seventies that nuclear fusion is almost here. I mean, is that what he's talking about, basically, or is he going even further into the sci-fi realm and talking about things like antimatter? <laughs> like, what does he mean? Yeah, I don't know. I have not read the Fourth Industrial Revolution. I've I've heard a few like, um, you know, podcasters, alternative media types who who I generally trust discuss it mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, seems to me what a lot of it comes down to is kind of taking the next step for the internet, but also he seems to be really into this idea of like more bioengineering that that we're going to be doing things like modifying Mm. ourselves physiologically, you know, putting like literally he talks about putting chips in people and whatever. Um, Oh yeah. Well, I mean, Sweden already did it right. Like with, with uh, their, um, I don't know how much it, you know, took, but you know, there was, you know, a story about how they were putting in, 
their vaccine passports in chip form under the skin. Like I saw the footage of people doing it. It was like a news story on like every major, you know, news platform. And again, I don't know how well it took. I can't imagine it would take very well. I really can't imagine it ever taking off here in America. That just <laughs> good luck with that. If you want to try to implement that. Yeah. Well, it, it seems like also a big part of it is the, um, the ability of both government and big corporations to more effectively in kind of a sneaky way uh be totalitarian so if if mm-hmm. you heard um the Joe Rogan episode recently with Majid Nawaz where he explained a lot of this stuff I love Majid he yeah he's yeah i i was worried that he had gone crazy but he seems much more like stable than i expected because he he just was going like hard on his like lbc show back in the day uh, shouldn't say back in the day but it was back in the day it was with <laughs> covid has warped my sense of time <laughs> it's been two years but yeah like he was going hard on that stuff and it was starting to sound unhinged but when i actually heard him explain himself i was i was relieved that you know i don't know if he's right but at least he sounds like he has a stable sense of reality to a degree at yeah least. and he did um you know have have the sources he he did have kind of the footnotes for everything he said you know he'd be he'd say something that sounds crazy like oh they want to put chips on you to track you and decide what you're allowed to buy and whatever and then he's like yeah and if you pull up this video here's the chancellor of the exchequer in the uk literally saying it you know <laughs> so it, it, it's these things that where like if Alex Jones says them, everyone just goes, oh, tin foil hat. But then you actually go and like, no, these these world leader types, these Klaus Schwab's and, and you know, his people that are in governments around the world, or whatever, like they it, it's this bizarre thing where they flat out will say what they're up to. And yet, if you go tell somebody on the street, hey, these these world leaders want to track everything you do and decide whether or not you're allowed to buy a hamburger or whatever, um, they'd be like, oh, that's that's just insane. But like. Yeah, they're telling you that's the problem. Right. And I think the problem is that the only people who are like paying attention to this and who just have an opinion one way or the other are just they don't like it. So when somebody comes at you with a negative like that, it's just going to motivate you to just be skeptical. The real dividing line here is that that has yet to come is what I'm saying is 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 not that does this is this a thing or is this happening because like you said they are saying they want it to happen so the question is going to turn into eventually um and i hope so because you know that's a much more productive debate and you don't have to listen to people whinge about fake news or misinformation is it's just going to be a debate of is this a good thing or is this a bad thing and i think that the unfortunate truth is that the only people talking about it right now are saying it's a bad thing. So that's going to incentivize people who don't trust them or don't like them for whatever particular reason to just suddenly say in a reactionary sort of way. And this in a weird way kind of previews what uh, an aspect of this conversation I was, you know, hoping to talk about that, that, that they're just going to be reactionarily, if that's a word, positive on these changes on this fourth industrial revolution they're just because they don't like the people criticizing it preemptively they're just going to say well it must be a good thing because majinawa sucks or whatever yeah in in just the same way that this happened with trump where trump could actually say something that's totally correct and right on occasion (laughs) and you know trump if trump said during his presidency i think it's a good thing if you brush your teeth every day I could just about imagine, you know, there goes the mainstream progressive left. 
ah, brushing your teeth is evil. You know, brushing your teeth is terrible for you. It's like no matter no matter what he says, they're going to do the opposite. So I think you're right that part of it is a is a personality thing, you know, um, where someone telling you the truth, but you've been conditioned for whatever reason to see them as bad or an enemy or whatever. You're going to assume the opposite is true. Um, but. Well, I, I highlighted my own bias there because, like I said, like it felt like Majin Nawaz was going a little nuts for a while to me. But, you know, then when I actually listened to what he had to say, I was like, okay, well, he's making points that I would like to take seriously, that they, they seem reasonable to take seriously and judge for myself, you know? But like that, dis- that, that dismissiveness in my head was there and I recognize it in myself. And that's what's kind of scary is when you recognize your own vulnerabilities like that, you realize, holy shit. Everybody has his vulnerabilities and a lot of people aren't going to acknowledge them or even realize they're there. Yeah. Yeah. And like anything else, right? The first, the first step is admitting you have a problem. I, I think, you know, nobody can eliminate those, those tendencies in, in all of our psychology. But if you're aware that they're there, at least some of the time, you'll be able to kind of, you know, identify them when they pop up and, and figure out, you know, ways to try and, and mitigate them. I, I will say, I do think another factor too, particularly when we're talking about like the very, very kind of like blue pilled normie types, right? The ty- the types that turn on CNN, watch it for a few minutes and go, all right, I know what's going on in the world. Um, that, yeah. That those people, they're, they're, I think partly you'll never wake them up to things like, for example, the World Economic Forum crowds plans for us and everything like that, in part because it's it's frightening, honestly, when you sit and listen to Majid Nawaz or somebody else like that, go through what these people really do want to do to our societies. Um, it's it's frightening and depressing. It's scary. And so I think there's a tendency of a certain type of person to just simply la 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 la, just, you know, blind eye yeah. to any sort of bad news. These are the same people that like won't prepare for natural disasters and, and economic disasters and whatever. Um because the first step to prepare for things like natural disasters and economic disasters is to realize that they're possible that that you know if you're if you're in Florida uh, and you want to prepare for a, a hurricane or if you're in California and you want to prepare for earthquakes and wildfires or whatever the first step is like staring full in the face that like this can happen you know a storm or or a, an earthquake or a wildfire can like obliterate my house and everything I own or, you know, cause all sorts of disruption and distress. And, um, you know, I think that's why a lot of people do not take proper preparations uh, for those sorts of things. And I think it's the same uh, uh, tendency of people. There's a, it's, it's, I think there's a psychological term for it, but I can't think of it off the top of my head where basically you, you willfully ignore potential threats and dangers because it is depressing and scary to think about them. And as a result, you then refuse to it, prepare for them. So, right. Yeah. It's like, it, well, I, I don't know what the term is off the top of my head, but what you're talking about is, is people's attempts at thwarting cognitive dissonance. Like that's, that's, you know, and I know there's a term for that. I just can't think of it either, but it's, yeah. And that makes sense to me too, because I mean, it, it, only started to make sense to me when I moved to California and I've only been through a couple earthquakes and they've been kind of minor. Um, we're always being told that the big one is coming, but that's the thing is that I think if you live in certain zones of the country, namely the East coast or the West coast, you have to, you know, you have a better grasp on the inherent risks that the world brings you because you can't do anything to stop a hurricane. You can't do anything to stop an earthquake you can conceivably do things to stop a wildfire, but they still happen. I mean, 
honestly, I didn't really wake up to the threat of wildfires until the ones that happened. Um, I honestly, they happen every year. So I, they kind of all blend together, but the ones that were like truly nightmarish, the ones where you're going down the 405 and it looks like Mordor on either side of you. Like when that footage came out, that was when it hit me. I was like, Oh, this is a thing I have to live with. And like, Everybody who I know outside of California, at least, or outside of – no one I know on the East Coast actually said anything about it because I think they're used to things like that. But like all my Midwestern friends, family, and acquaintances, they're all just like, oh, it's so scary. It's so scary. But like none of them are actually registering that. No, no, no. We live with this and we just have to sort of accept it and normalize it within ourselves while also being prepared. Like every house – well, hopefully every house in California is stocked with water. Because we have to be. If the if an earthquake hits and the entire like power grid shuts down and things get really, you know, you know, squirrely, we have to have water, like, to drink. <laughs> we don't exactly have a lot of fresh water here. So yeah, it's it's um there is a, a sense of preparedness, I think, that a lot of us will just internalize, but I think you're right that like the impulse to just not think about it is stronger, I think. And the, and people doing anything that that reminds them that this inherent risk is there, like going out to buy a bunch of jugs of water or whatever. Uh, I think that is too much for a lot of people. I don't know if I want to say that like people on you know the coast or in the danger zones have like an inherent sort of uh, skill in dealing with these sorts of things, but I think we do have a better skill than most of the rest of the country. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's at least once every year or two, some part of Florida gets clobbered by a pretty serious hurricane. And there's still lots of people who've many of whom have lived here for many years who do nothing for preparation, don't even do the most basic (laughs) preparations. And yeah, I I don't I don't understand it, but there's large enough numbers of them that that to me, this is a pretty widespread uh, psychological phenomenon of, of just deliberately you know, turning a blind eye to to threats because it's stressful to think about them. And in order to prepare for them, you have to think about them and it's, it's stressful. Well, and you, you just got me thinking that's another sort of, um, and this actually is a cycle because, you know, it's in nature is natural disasters. Mm -hmm. Natural disasters tend to be, I don't know if they're the ignition or if they're the gasoline being poured on the fire of, you know, uh, of, of changes, but they like, they tend to have ripple effects. And, you know, yeah, obviously we can question whether or not, like, or rather the origin of COVID-19, we can question that. I think, you know, it's pretty reasonable to assume that there's, there was some unnatural elements to that at this point. Just, it's reasonable to at least talk about it, I'll say, but it's still a natural disaster in the sense that it's an illness. It's a pandemic. Pandemics cause, I mean, I, I, we talked about that, about, uh, it was, it's going on a year and a half now, you know, pandemics have ripple effects. Uh, natural disasters have ripple effects. Like the great awakenings that we were speaking of, they tend to coincide with natural disasters of some kind. Um, a lot of the time, I shouldn't say all the time, but a lot of the time they do. Um, floods, hurricanes, meteors, whatever. Like I, it's one of those things that like does kind of speak to the idea that we do, find ourselves trapped in certain kinds of cycles. And I think the cycles are the natural ones, most likely, um, because you're never not going to have a pandemic. Pandemics always happen. That's the one thing Bill Gates gets right. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, so- yeah, but I think I 
go ahead. Go well, ahead. I was just going to uh, cycle back to what I was saying before and say that. Um, so, you know, the way I was thinking about it is you've got these many different kind of rhythms or cycles that are, you know, periodically going through uh, birth, growth, decay and death of, um, you know, d- these different aspects of, of social change, economic, uh, generational, religious, uh, party system, mm-hmm. you know, politics. And they're all kind of on different different time spans. Like, I, I don't think they're synchronized, you know. So maybe, no. maybe one of them is swinging – Every 20 years, say, just throwing this out hypothetically, and another one is, is you know, going through a, a 30-year cycle and another one's going through a 50-year cycle. And so, but where the really big shifts happen are when you have several of those coming together at once. So, for example, if you had a major generational shift coincide with a major religious mm-hmm. revival and a major uh, political shift and a major economic transformation all happening simultaneously – that's when you have, um, in in the way I'm thinking about this, that's when you have what you're talking about, which is this just like across the board paradigm shift that includes almost everything as far as, as you know, social life, as far as, you know, ideology, values in the deeper sense, also political, you know, preferences and things like that, also religious attitudes and so on and so forth. And yeah, I, I think... Anyway, that, that's that's the way I was thinking about it in my head. You've got these these different cycles going independently of each other, each on their own rhythm. But every now and then, just because of coincidence, they all hit the change right. part of the cycle at roughly around the same time. And that's when things get get really interesting, as we might say. And I, yeah, well, and I think the uh, the generational cycle you speak of, it's less about who's rising because it's a lot of people. It's Generation X, Y, and Z. Like all of us are. You know, we have quite a bit of life ahead ahead of us, you know, and the boomers are on their way out. That's the generational shift. And I think that that is causing a sort of like rip or, or rather, I, I, don't, I mean, that's causing a ripple effect. But again, like you're saying, it's like they're all coinciding at the same time and colliding with each other and creating a new sort of reality. I mean, that's sort of something that's interesting because like like I was telling you before, I've been looking into the um, the Jacksonian revolution, for lack of a better term, or realignment actually is a better word. And what that was in the early 1820s was really finally when the old guard of the revolutionaries and those who were directly descended from them, like John Quincy Adams, that's when they were basically like, okay, well, you know, they're out and this new generation is in. So I'm thinking that might be the generational shift that occurred back then. Because it, um, it, it really did, it was really every, I was listening to a lot of interviews with experts about Jackson specifically and about that era. And they all seem to agree that that was fundamentally the biggest shift was it was finally like on, like uh, the American project was finally untethered from the revolution in the most direct ways. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think there's some truth to that. Also, I think when I look at the Jacksonian era, there's another thing happening simultaneously that also contributes to the change, which is the Jackson era is the first period in American history where the states west of Appalachia, the, the trans-Appalachian, you know, Old West, 
are becoming states and thus are having an impact on the political mm-hmm. system. So it's no longer just the original states along the Atlantic coast. Now, Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, et cetera, are all, and, and Jackson represents that as well. As, aside from a, a generational change, he also represents sure. the rising West as do um, many of the other leading politicians of that era, like Henry Clay, you know, who's, who's on the opposite side of Jackson on politics and ideology. But one thing they do have in common is, is they both, you know, represent the impact of the West, um, and, and maybe, you know, Lincoln from Illinois is, is like a culmination of that, you know, at the close of the Jacksonian era. Mm-hmm. I, I have a question for you because uh, I just, I just thought of it and I, you know, we, it like came up when um, we were like shooting ideas back and forth earlier um, that it's obvious, at least to me that the first major realignment, if it wasn't, <sighs> I want to give credit to Thomas Jefferson and those guys who who separated from the Federalists. That is a realignment in a way, but that feels just more like the first, like a, an alignment, if you will. There was no realignment there necessarily, um, but it, it just doesn't feel as significant to me as a Jacksonian one. But my question is, uh, where does the Civil War fit into this? Because you are as close to anybody I know, an expert on the Civil War after your epic series – so where like where does that fit into the um the schema of of a realignment happening back um in the 19th century? Yeah, I would I would say that probably um I'm not sure how much it it affected the cultural side of things, the the culture, the values in the outside of politics realm. I I think sure. that the Civil War Part of it is is uh, like a, an economic revolution in a way, um, but it's also a political thing. So it's a big deal in the sense that number one, the the issue of slavery was you know settled. Obviously, that's a that's a big deal. Um, but it also was it, it was the end of the Jackson era in the sense that you know if you look at um, Abraham Lincoln's political ideas, right, for most of his career. He didn't really talk much about slavery hardly at all, and he didn't start to to make it a big deal in his political rhetoric until the 1850s when the Kansas-Nebraska dispute suddenly made slavery like the biggest issue in the world, and you kind of had to had to take a hard stance one way or the other on it. Um, but if you look at for, – for most of his political career from uh, – I think he first ran for office in Illinois in 1832 uh, up until about 1852 when slavery became the big thing – his his main political uh, uh, fixations were basically he was a Henry Clay guy. He he was pushing kind of the neo Hamiltonian idea of strong central government, high tariff, um, national bank. He was a big supporter of the national bank and government subsidies to so called internal improvements, which by by Lincoln's era were coming to include not just roads and um, canals and things, which he supported. Uh, big big government infrastructure projects there, but also railroads. By the you know by the time uh, Lincoln had been in politics for a decade or two, railroads were becoming a big thing, and he, like Henry Clay, was um, you know very much a supporter of the government subsidizing the building of railroads. Mm. So when Lincoln wins and gets control of the federal government, and then the the fact that the South drops out of the Union, which means they're no they're no longer participating in Congress. That means you know the the part of the country that would have had the most people in Congress pushing back against this Henry Clay program of Lincoln are 
for obvious reasons, not participating in the U.S. Congress during those years. Yeah. And so there's there's way less. I mean, yeah, there's some northern Democrats here and there who who still were pushing back against this. But, you know, the Republicans were able to just dominate because the South wasn't participating mm. in the system. And so Lincoln's able to get every everything he wants, practically. You know, I did a bonus episode for show supporters about the other side of the Lincoln administration, the side that you don't hear about, which is his domestic policies that are not directly related to the war. So, you know, mm. I, I talked about all this sort of stuff where Lincoln, yeah, he's doing all all the things he did in order to prosecute the war, but he's also being very generous to the railroad companies. He's also starting the process of resurrecting a national bank, although he doesn't quite do it entirely. He he creates like a, a halfway house to central banking under the National <laughs> Banking Acts. Um, and, you know, he, he was a big, uh, big subsidizer of railroad interests and you know and, and i called him corporate ape in in that episode because I, I really think that's <laughs> that's what he was um and for, for obvious reasons the domestic non-war parts of his his presidency are usually just completely ignored and overlooked because the war is going on and that obviously is is a big dramatic uh, affair right um but you know when when you look at what the other hand was doing while he's doing the war um he's basically putting in place uh, the Hamilton through Henry Clay program. Uh, when, when Henry Clay died, Lincoln spoke at his funeral, I believe, gave a eulogy. It basically said, you know, Henry Clay's the greatest American statesman who ever lived. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I definitely think the, the war was a, was a realignment of a sort. Was it as much of a total realignment as, as some of these other ones we might talk about? I don't know. You know, it, it, it's tempting to say yes, just because the war itself was so bloody and dramatic and obviously sure. did have all kinds of important changes that came about as a result. You know, it, it, it definitely solidified in the argument about where relative power should lie, the states or the federal government. It definitely, you know, the, the war and its aftermath definitely strengthened the hand of the federal government quite a bit over what it had been up until then. Um, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, another another big change that came out of the Civil War that. I think often gets overlooked, but um, does have long, long lasting impacts to this day is that it's the civil war in its aftermath when the South first starts to become the Bible belt. That, that's when the South starts to become more religious generally than the North prior to the civil war in American history. Yes, there were religious revivals that included parts of the South and yes, you know, there were religious people in the South and whatever, but I think if if you were just you know saying overall big picture, what part of the country is the more religious part prior to the Civil War? It's actually the Northeast. It's yeah, New yeah, England. It's, it's, yeah, I mean the, it's New England, it, upstate the, New York, and a few areas around the Great Lakes. Right. Yeah, because I was going to say uh, the Second Great Awakening was it, its ferment was the. Uh, the burned over district, quote unquote, in upstate New York. And before that, uh, the first great awakening, that was, you know, hotbed Puritan New England. You know, I mean, it was like right, right there. Yeah. Yeah. Both of the, the first and second great awakenings both started in the Northeast and then only started to spread into the South later. And mm. my impression is that on average, during the first two great awakenings in American history, the, the, the stronger zeal overall was in the North. Like not only did it start there, mm -hmm. but that, you know, the, the denominations that popped up tended to be more, for lack of a better term, extreme in the North, mm -hmm. you know, as far as the more like zealous, um, pietistic, 
evangelical right. type, you know, also unorthodox, right? Like the um, like the Mormons sure. and the Seventh Day Adventists and things like that mm-hmm. that you know were further outside the mainstream of of American Protestantism at the time. Uh, whereas in the South, in the first two Great Awakenings, it's it's still closer to mainline. Like it's like okay, you know, you get Baptists and Methodists and things like that, and yes, they're a little bit more, you know, evangelical um, than than right. say the Episcopalian or Presbyterian Church at the time, but but the the Baptists and Methodists, I don't think, are ever quite as as uh, evangelical and pietistic as some of the some of the de- denominations that you only find in the North during those awakenings. I have a couple hypotheses about why that might be, and maybe you could just tell me why it is. Uh, but just, or at least tell me if I'm onto something here. That the impression I have is that the rise of the Bible Belt uh, after the Civil War has this sort of like, like a lot of it has to do with the rise of the Black Church. There was a lot more attendance to churches, especially after emancipation. Uh, so I would imagine that plays a part. But I'm wondering if the other factor that like pushed people into more of a religious zeal down south was the loss of the Civil War. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. I talked a bit in one of the latter episodes of my Civil War series all those years ago. I'm trying to remember which one, because I do remember you talking about it, yeah, but I don't remember what it was. Yeah, well, there was a really interesting book that I read um, called Culture of Defeat, and it's mm. by a really interesting writer. I, I've, I think I've read one other book by him that's called Three New Deals, and it's comparing the the government policies of fascist Italy, Nazi Germany, and uh, FDR's New oh, Deal in terms in terms in particular of like the the economic corporatism and all those sorts of things. Mm. And anyway, it's a it's a um, I think he's German by his name. He probably is. If not, he's Austrian or something. It's a guy named Wolf Wolfgang <laughs> Schivelbush. And <laughs> he may, he gives my name a run for its money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, I think he's some sort of like a like a not not a formal academic historian like doesn't have a phd in in uh, history or whatever so he's he's very um he's very unorthodox i i always find him very interesting so anyway the the book in question that dealt with the um another thing i like about him is that it seems like at least based on the two books i've read by him he likes to do comparative history and to me that's always fascinating mm. to do comparative history sure uh, but anyway culture of defeat he's looking at and comparing and contrasting um three different instances in relatively recent history of nations that went through like a massive defeat in war and Mm. what it did to like the psychology and culture of them. And so he's looking at France uh, when it's defeated in the Franco-Prussian War and then Germany Mm. when it's defeated in World War One. And then also also looking at the South uh, after the Civil War and the way that um the different ways that these three different societies each reacted to the same overall circumstance of not just losing a war, but losing a war in a way that was particularly um, traumatic to the psychology of the mm-hmm. nation. Right. Cause like the Franco Prussian war, even though it was a relatively brief war and not that big, you know, in terms of body count compared to something like world war one or the Napoleonic wars, psychologically, the Franco Prussian war was a big deal for the French. I mean, they really got stunned 
by um, yeah. not just that the Prussians beat him, but like how one-sided it was. I mean, it's just so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and also it wasn't leading up to that. France was the dominant land power in Europe oh, yeah. for centuries at that point, right? Yeah. I mean, like, so yeah, that that's going to bruise your self-image in a major way. I, oh man, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I just suddenly thought like how, oh, man, I we're not at war right now, but I, but there is a general sense that America's on the back foot right now. And I have to wonder if that's going to produce a similar effect. Maybe not as traumatic, but I don't know. We can jump back. I just, let's put a pin in that. I just, you just, I just needed to say it out loud so I wouldn't forget it. Cause that, that just made me think of that. But yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I wanted to, um, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, basically, you know, if I remember right, he argues in the book that this, dramatic increase in religiosity in the South and just in general of kind of like, you know, the South was always in various ways culturally conservative, but I think it actually becomes more culturally conservative after the Civil War than it really was before. Um, and, you know, just in general becomes more more reactionary, that sort of thing. I can understand. I can understand that, especially from what we were talking about before, because they don't get to have slavery anymore, but you can't just beat the desire to be conservative about issues like that out of somebody. I mean, we sure as hell tried to do that with, you know, Germans after World War II, but, you know, as I covered in one of my episodes, that didn't work very well, at least not initially. Um, It just, it requires time, like generations. And so that makes sense to me that, like, you're defeated. You're a Southerner. You're defeated. You don't get to have slaves anymore. You don't get to support slavery as an institution anymore. And it's obvious that you're the loser, so what do you do to cope with that? To cope with that, you latch on to conservative values in a different yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And let me throw out another comparison. And I can't remember if um, if this is one that I that I sort of thought of on my own, or if I read this somewhere a long, long time ago and just can't remember where it was. But um, another interesting comparison with the defeated South is the the kind of Islamic world when hmm. the the ottoman empire goes into serious decline and falls way behind the west oh, yeah. and how and then you know once the middle east becomes largely um you know the plaything of of western imperialists um that the link between that and uh islam in many of those areas becoming more fundamentalist whereas if you look back mm-hmm. at when those places were relatively um innovative and prosperous and doing as well or better than the west in those areas, in terms of things like mathematics, yeah, absolutely, yeah, the, the yeah. various you know Islamic um, uh, renaissances that that happened, yes, um, where there's really was a lot of you know scientific work and things like this, um, that you know Islam during those periods when those societies were doing very well was tended to be less fundamentalist and you know all that stuff tended to be more small L liberal, more tolerance, whatever. And so mm-hmm. there's sort of a parallel there too, where, you know, when the South was doing relatively better, I think they, they tended to be less rigidly fundamentalist and dogmatic about religion and, and less intolerant of, of dissent and all that. And then once they're defeated, you know, one of the ways that they, they cope with that is to, um, to latch on, um, and, and maybe it was in the Chival Bush book. Maybe, maybe there was a part in that book where he actually talked a little bit about the, even though it's not one of the big three he's comparing, he, he might have had a passage in there where he brought up, um, you know, the, the Islamic world and how it kind of became more reactionary yeah. culturally and, and religiously when it kind of started to, to decline and fall. 
I can tell you, I can actually just give you a bit of evidence that maybe he brings up if it was in his book, um, that that's absolutely true, that the decline of the Ottoman Empire is what really, I think, is at the core of where reactionary Islamist ideology got its rise, because the um, the sort of thinker, writer who most inspired Osama bin Laden was a man named Syed Qutbah. And he was this extremely anti-Western, reactionary, conservative Islamist who I believe he went to America and then wrote about how disgusted he was at our decadence and how, like, you know, you know how liberal we were. Mm-hmm. And his writings were very influential in those circles of uh, Islamist thinkers and uh, and eventually doers. Um, I shouldn't call them doers. That sounds really messed up, but you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah, and I, I think there's a yeah. parallel to be made too. Uh, to it was the 1920s, by the way. I should okay. add that. So it was right in the middle of the decline of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, so, like the last, yeah. the last sort of phases of its, uh, its, right. its collapse and yeah. transformation, right? Because World War One is basically what what does it in. Uh, another interesting comparison in that whole idea of a place that you know experiences, you know, a major national psychological trauma, and then kind of goes into more uh, um conservatism reactionaryism etc is russia itself since since the mm-hmm. fall of the soviet union like you know it seems like and and putin himself is is sort of you know fostering this but also kind of riding the wave of it of cultural conservatism um turning back to the orthodox church uh turning back to like old school russian kind of things you know as a way to cope with you know, the the experience of the collapse of the Soviet Empire, and then also, to be fair, the way that the West has often treated Russia in those 30 years. You know, it, it's really when you look into the details of of how the the, the U.S. And, and Western Europe really did not do a great job of sort of being magnanimous and generous. We were sore and, winners. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it occurred to me recently, by the way, that basically – and I can't remember if I posted something about this on social media yet or not, but basically think what when you look at the way Russia has been treated by the West overall from, say, like 1992 to now, 30 years mm-hmm. to me, I'm looking at that now and I'm thinking that is the exact same historical phenomenon as the way Germany was treated at the end of World War One, mm. only it was done gradually over 30 years instead of done, you know, in a year or two at the end of the war with the Versailles Treaty. But it's the same sort of deal where you have a country that's defeated and the leaders of the victorious countries, instead of having the wisdom and foresight and prudence to say, yes, you know, we won, but let's be generous, magnanimous winners, because otherwise, if we're you know, gloating and rubbing their nose in it and mistreating them in various ways and exploiting their loss. Um, we're going to set them up for lo- wanting to get revenge sooner or later. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I always compare. Careful, you're sounding like Keynes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the one thing I think he was he was absolutely dead right on. Um, if, if, if you if you look back, um, you know, the contrast is always the way that the victorious uh, great powers treated France at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, where, you know, they Mm -hmm. required regime change. They required, yeah, Napoleon can't be in charge of France anymore um, and restored the Bourbon monarchy, which, you know, that may may not have been the greatest move, but I don't know (laughs) what else they could have done at the time, realistically. Um, And then, you know, France had to give up territory it had conquered during those wars, but France didn't lose any of the territory that it held prior to the revolution in those wars. 
and it did mm-hmm. not, you know, have Alsace and Lorraine stripped of it, that kind of thing. It did not have um, crushing uh, financial reparations payments placed on it. Like, you know, so, so to me, the not that not that it was perfect, but by comparison, either with how Germany was treated at the end of World War One or how Russia has been treated since the end of the Cold War, the the leaders of 1815 in Europe were far wiser, you know, uh, statesmen, far, far more prudence. You know, they realized like, yeah, we can't be too harsh on France. Otherwise, if we do, we're pretty much guaranteeing that in a decade or two or three, France is going to be looking to get its revenge against the whole freaking continent of Europe again. And we're going to end up in another disastrous, you know, multi-decade long war that completely threatens to, to overturn everything. I can speculate why, um, at least uh, in modern times, why that lack of foresight or lack of wisdom has prevailed with the defeat of nations like Germany and Russia and I suspect it's because we have largely abandoned uh, honor culture. And while on the ground and at home, I think that's probably a good thing because, you know, dignity is more important than honor. I think if you understand honor culture, though, by living in it, then you are more likely to empathize or be able to empathize with the notion of a people wanting revenge for humiliation, for defeat. And in a way, it's even more inevitable that that's happened now because some have said – and I forgot where I read this. There was an article about it. I want to say actually in The Atlantic. They still occasionally do some really good stuff there. Um, But it was from like five years ago or something that we've just gone full into not being even a dignity culture anymore but being a victimhood culture. I mean we – know this in so many ways. I don't know if it's necessarily a fact, but what I'm saying is the further away we get from honor culture, the more likely it seems to me that we could just keep making the same mistake of not taking the notion that a nation will want revenge for something that we don't even remember, you know? Uh, So I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm just spitballing that. I have no idea if that's true. It's just, you know, a thought that came to my head. Yeah, no, I I think there's, there's definitely something there. I I think that, that that you're onto something with that. I think there's there's something else possibly at play simultaneously uh, in in creating this, you know, increasing unwillingness, say, of victorious leaders to have the prudence to think long term and you know deal deal mm-hmm. reasonably uh, with with defeated enemies. A- another factor I think playing into this is that unlike in 1815, um, much of the world is some sort of at least nominally democracy. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. whereas, you know, even in the most democratic of the victorious allies countries of 1815 would be Britain, but Britain at the time, yeah, they had parliament, but vast majority of of British people couldn't vote for it. You know, Um, it was, it was still nothing remotely like real mass democracy. But by the time you get to world war one, more places do have mass democracy. And when you combine mass democracy with the horrific expenses of a war like World War One or subsequent major wars, um, propaganda, mass propaganda becomes way more important and therefore way more widespread and, and way more widely mm. used. In, in 1810, governments didn't need to and didn't engage in gigantic mass propaganda um, campaigns, in part because of technology. I would imagine 
Yeah, well, I would imagine a lot of the citizens were still illiterate, so propaganda is not exactly going to work. Yeah, yeah, and, if it's written down at least. Yeah, and obviously, you know, the only media you really had were were print of various types, um, as well. Mm-hmm. And whereas by the 20th century, you're getting more and more, you know, media that you can use for propaganda. But basically, I think what happens is if you look at a war like World War One or World War Two, um, or you know, even something like the Cold War, that throughout those conflicts. The people are being just inundated for multiple generations in the case of the Cold War with propaganda demonizing the enemy, right? Well, mm-hmm. if you do that enough and it really is um, internalized by the bulk of your, your mass voter population, you can't flip that switch off. If you're the leader, even if you are a wise mm-hmm. leader with a lot of prudence, you can't just turn that switch off instantaneously and say, okay, boom, we, we won uh, today – Therefore, everybody needs to just completely delete from their their brains and attitudes and instincts all of the propaganda we've indoctrinated you with during the conflict, right? And so the leaders themselves are boxed in by the monster they created in terms of propagandized voters who who look at the enemy Mm. as a demon. And so, you know, why, for example, why, for example, did the leaders of Britain and France, why were they so insistent on raking Germany over the coals in 1918? Well, at least part of it is that in Britain and France, those were pretty democratic places by World War I, and they had been heavily propagandizing their people, especially Britain, but but France, you know, almost as much, propagandizing their people, demonizing the Germans in order to keep the war effort going. Okay, now you've won. You can't then tell your people, okay, yeah, we told you for four years that the Kaiser is a literal monster who wants to take over the planet and enslave us all, and that all Germans are like that too. Um it's not just a bad regime, right? There's something fundamental about the German people that's evil. And then say, mm-hmm. you know, and also tell your people for four years that the war is 100% caused by them. And after the people yeah. have been not just propagandized, but have suffered, right? They've suffered um, loss of loved ones. They've suffered economic devastation from the war. You can't then be a politician in a democratic system and go, all right, I know you want to really get revenge on them, rub their nose in it, take all the money you can to... to you know, pay us back for the damages we've suffered, but that's really an unwise thing to do. Uh, and so to me, it's a case where, where the politician becomes captive of his own mob that he helped to create mm-hmm. and whip up. So I think that's another right. factor that, that's driving this tendency of leaders to not have wisdom and foresight. And, and plus, in general, the more democratic a system is, especially if it has very frequent elections, the more uh, politicians are incentivized and trained to not think long term. Because right. a lot of the time, the thing that's the right thing to do for the long term is the less – No one's going to like less it. Popular no option, one's right? going to want to support it. I mean it. That's, that's how yeah. it is in politics just as much as in daily life, right? Like it's it's more fun to, mm-hmm. to, to eat Fruit Loops and watch Netflix for 12 hours a day um, in the moment. <laughs> but obviously in the long run, uh, it, it's no good. Whereas you know, to, to eat something healthy and then go work out really hard in the moment may seem like the less fun and pleasurable option. But you know – and and I th- I think in general that there's been a decrease in time preference amongst people in general, and then the politicians reflect that, um, responding to incentives and circumstances where where just in general people, mm-hmm. I think on average, do sacrifice the long term much more often for short term pleasure and comfort. So and you you see this in o- o- obesity rates, you see this in you know all kinds of things. Yeah, you're highlighting something. That's part of something I've been noticing and uh, talking about sometimes in that 
you're highlighting the ecosystem aspect of uh of a culture of a political culture specifically a democratic one it sounds like in a lot of ways and you know for all the strengths that democracies have you know it's important to always highlight the weaknesses and what you're talking about is essentially what you know what us in the podcasting biz like to call audience capture where you're only delivering what your audience wants to hear rather than giving them the harsh truth. It's basically the opposite of what Orwell said was the duty of someone, I believe he said of a writer, to say that what the people don't want to hear is the most important thing to tell them. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but what I, as you were saying all that, I was just thinking that there is a certain, I mean, I think at this point you know me well enough to know that I really resist anybody trying to paint America in a unique light. In, for good or bad, um, because I don't think – I mean, I do think we're unique in some ways, but I think it's overstated, um, and a lot of that is propaganda, I think. But I think what's interesting about America, though, is that even as far back as – I mean, specifically the Jacksonian era, to jump back to that, we did have a very engaged public. I mean, yes, only white men could vote, but women played a part in the voting process. And apparently this, um, this historian I was listening to, he was saying that – there was a lot of uh, cases where a husband would vote because a certain way because his wife told him to. Sure. <laughs> and um, it, and it wasn't just because, you know, it's like, uh, get her off my back, you know, Al Bundy style, like just, you know, she's annoying or whatever. But it was more because women were very politically engaged back then. And, in, a, a, but despite not having the right to vote, they engaged that way. And what I'm getting at here is that I think America has had that, issue of propaganda really since its founding in a lot of ways. I mean, the first newspapers in America were pamphlets for the parties. So I'm and and while we did have lower rates of literacy back then, obviously, I still think there's something to the idea that this inundation of propaganda, maybe that is what drives the cycles we've been talking about of realignments. Because we've always been propagandized is the sense I'm getting. I mean, am I am I off on that? Well, I mean, I, I think there's always been some amount of mass propaganda going on in the United sure. States. I, I think that there was – I think that there's been a an ongoing significant shift though both in – how would I put this? In the amount of propaganda being done and mm -hmm. in – just in terms of the the different technologies that have come come along in the last hundred or two hundred years, you know, I mean, you know, you start off this country is created after the printing press is already a thing, um, but then eventually you get you know radio and TV and movies and internet and you know everything else, and so propaganda became I think much more gradually totalistic in that it's everywhere mm -hmm. in a way that you know in 1850. If you just chose to not pick up and read a newspaper or a pamphlet or whatever, you're fine. Whereas today, unless you're Ted Kaczynski living in the woods, you know, you're going to be barraged with propaganda right. every time you do anything. So I, I think it's become more totalistic that way. Sure. And I haven't read Edward Bernays' book of same name, Propaganda, uh, and I want to. But so maybe he talks about this. But I think what's so genius about the totalistic proliferation of propaganda is that you don't even have to have people consciously trying to propagandize for the propaganda to exist and be effective. The incentives just are there uh, to create something that the people want. 
You know what I mean? Like the propaganda has become in a lot of ways because of its totalistic nature, almost an unconscious process, if that makes sense. Yeah. And another aspect of propaganda that, that people often, you know, who've never really studied it or thought about it really deeply don't realize is I think most people, the idea of propaganda in their head that they have is that it's always top down under central control. And it, yeah, they think of Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia and that they're just like, that's just what it is because it's just controlled by the state and that's all propaganda right, is. Right, right. Yeah. Whereas I think the propaganda that oftentimes is the most effective is that which is more um, horizontal and sometimes even bottom up in addition mm-hmm. to top down like that. That never goes away, but it's also more decentralized. So mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean even though it's decentralized in terms of, of the actual institutions and organizations doesn't mean they're not coordinating in various ways. So if mm-hmm. you if you look at the United States currently, it's not like. All the propaganda or even most of the propaganda is directly coming from the United States government's Ministry of Truth or Committee on Public Information or whatever. Right. Um, that instead, you know, you've got these nominally private uh, media corporations. And then you also have, you know, in, in addition to like news media corporations, you also have the entertainment media corporations, which also are loaded with propaganda. And then you've got mm. um, another thing that I, that I think is highly full of propaganda, which is the the schooling system. And so mm-hmm. – there's no like one department that's like forcing all these different institutions to work off the same script, but there's various means by which they're sometimes on purpose and sometimes just sort of naturally through uh, responding to incentives and things. They, that's what yeah, I was talking yeah, about. Yeah. They, they, they yeah. do coordinate their narrative. And, and like I mentioned in my first dirty Baker's dozen episode um, that <laughs> I think tacit uh, tacit collusion or signaling is very often what's, what's going on too, where, you know, a few key public figures and media outlets and whatever put out a particular narrative and lesser institutions and even individuals that are in that same propaganda camp, they don't have to be told this is the narrative. This is the script. Make sure mm-hmm. you all say horse dewormer every time you bring up ivermectin. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think in some cases, I think there might be like actual orders being given, for example, um, from maybe let's say like, someone like Klaus Schwab or, or the CEO of a major media corporation or whatever. Um, also sometimes orders might be going out to media outlets through the CIA, which, you know, was basically has, has infiltrated uh, the media since the 1950s. So I'm not saying that the top down centrally controlled coordination never happens, but I'm, I'm saying, I don't think it's what's going on in the majority of cases. I, I think it's a much more no. complicated horizontal it, thing. It's like, it, it's organic in the sense that, Something genetically engineered is still technically an organic life form, you yeah. know. Uh, and, and what I mean is that because I was just thinking a good example of that is uh, of the incentive structure is you know the recent Joe Rogan controversy. It you know I don't know who uh, it was. Well, it was a it was a Twitter account that was a uh, 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 an arm of um of a DNC super PAC. But regardless, uh, like whatever the first major media outlet picked it up. Uh, you know, whoever it was, they picked it up. It did numbers because it's talking about Rogan because it's a, you know, it's a very popular topic and therefore it incentivized more people to report the same story in the same way because they want that traffic too. So therefore that's why it becomes a thing. And then that incentivizes the responses to it and that becomes its own little ecosystem as well. And, you know, and I'm just putting aside, you know, the debate on, 
you know, the subject altogether because I don't think it really matters for the purposes of this point. I think the point is that there's, there's such a robust ecosystem all operating off of attention, um, eyes, clicks, whatever you want to call it, that the, any effort to propagandize that way that, you know, there's, there's no effort required at all. It just, it just does it on its own, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, as you say, the, it, it didn't start out that easy with, you know, you know, within American history, because, you know, there's so many barriers there, but then as technology progressed, propaganda just became easier. And because, you know, again, everything has trade-offs like the, the trade-off to a capitalist system is that it's it runs off incentives and those incentives can be warped very easily and, and sometimes even manipulated. And I think that, you know, it, it's one of those things though that I I I have to wonder, has it just been baked into our system since the beginning? That that way of like looking at things. The idea of again, to bring it up again, the idea of propagandizing the masses. Like, is that just what American democracy is? <laughs> Am I overstating that? I don't know. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to think about that. Yeah, it, okay. it might be um, a, a combination of of sort of mass democracy, which then, in order for the elites to maintain control, right? This is what Wilson talked about when he talked about modern democracy, which is politics mm -hmm. gets made more democratic in terms of the number of people who can vote and and in terms of the number of things that they can vote on or for. And at the same time, though it's not democratic in the sense that two things. One is Wilson wants the people to not really spontaneously come up with their own desires and, and uh, wishes in terms of the policies they want. He wants, yeah, they don't know they, any yeah, better. Exactly. Yeah. Instead, <laughs> enlightened great men like Woodrow Wilson are mm -hmm. going to use their powers of rhetoric <laughs> to tell the masses what the masses should want. And then it's up to the masses mm -hmm. to essentially rubber stamp what their elite progressive leaders have told them they're supposed to want by, by then dutifully mm -hmm. supporting the policies that their leaders have told them are the right ones. Um, so it's, it's not democratic mm -hmm. in that way because it's basically top down. The leader tells the people what to vote for. And then the other way sure. that it's not democratic is that Wilson simultaneously wants this large permanent administrative state, right? Which is basically mm -hmm. uh, a technocracy, but he doesn't use the word yet because it wasn't coined in, in the 1880s. But, you know, if you, if you read the, the study of administration, which he wrote in the 1880s, he's basically talking about technocracy, that he wants much of what the government actually is and does, like, oh, yeah, okay, you know, your, your president and your congressman are elected by the people, whatever, but that much of what the government actually is and does is this permanent bureaucratic deep state where people are there mm -hmm. and, you know, for their entire working lives, other than maybe occasionally bopping into the private sector through the revolving door. Um, but, <laughs> you know, where where the people, yeah, the, the president can replace the people at the top of like the State Department or the, the Pentagon or whatever. But 99.9% .9 of the people who actually comprise that, that institution are the same people who were there for the last three presidents. Mm -hmm. And in most instances, they can't really be fired unless they like commit a crime or something like that. Um, and, and right. so you, you make politics. Well, and then if you see what, but then if you see what happened with, you know, the revelations, I believe it was the CIA and how this is dark, but how much child porn and child molestation was going on there and how none of these people saw any real consequences, except I think like one of them got fired. Yeah. yeah well, the, the national yeah. security, um, particularly the, the, uh, you know, secretive intelligence agency parts of the national security state, 
they're able to use their particular powers and skills that they have to get away with things that, you know, if there was a major... They're, they're like Hollywood. They are, uh, they're a morally broken rogue state, as I've called Hollywood. Like that, I mean, they, they are a rogue state within a state. Yeah, yeah. This, the CIA, and also in various ways, the, the NSA, the FBI, um, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, some of the lesser known intelligence agencies, they're able to use their powers of things like secrecy and, and the, the other powers that they have to protect themselves from scrutiny, uh, up to and including, I think in some cases, literally blackmailing members of Congress to, to protect themselves. Sure. Um, you know, that, that this stuff did not, did not end with J. Edgar Hoover dying, not by a long shot, in, in a way that the other departments of the government wouldn't be able to protect. So, for example, I don't think if there was a major epidemic of, pedophilia in the department of agriculture or the post office you know the postal service i don't think they'd be able to be as effective at covering it up and getting away with it for a long time and whatever as the cia they just don't have the same amount of tools to be secretive and cover things up and manipulate the media right you know so I, i i think all the worst tendencies of permanent administrative bureaucracies get like amplified a thousand fold when you're dealing with something like the the CIA, the FBI, the NSA that all the, have all these special powers that most of the other departments of government don't have. Well, they're, they're in control of, um, I keep pointing at the word in my head is observation surveillance. That's the word. That's the word. It's yeah. Like that, that definitely helps with that. Um, I, I'm also, by the way, I'm really glad you brought up Wilson because I wanted to jump back to Wilson as sort of the origin point of the current alignment we're in that's being realigned potentially right now, because I think that was the last meaningful one, like I was saying at the beginning. Um, uh, and I do also want my listeners, because these are this show is going to go up on both our feeds. Um, I want my listeners to go listen to your episode about uh, Wilson's paper, uh, The Study of Administration. Or was it a book? Uh, it was a, an essay or like an article, like an, a, essay. Like an academic journal article, yeah. I think, originally. Like it, I, I can't stress enough how weird – like weirdly compelling a podcast just discussing an essay about administration, uh, how weird it is, how compelling that podcast was that you did, where you're just talking about what Wilson is saying, and I'm riveted the whole way through. And I, I think more than once you you are responding just sort of off the cuff about Wilson, and you say, what the fuck are you talking about oh, his, <laughs> in so his, many ways? His writing is like just – so painful to it took me so long when i i later did so i did that one that one episode just on that one essay because i i i felt that that one essay was so important to understanding it's his ideas and also the country he created essentially the system he created um but it's like listening to klaus schwab saying all these things he's going to do to you years before he does them it's like he's telling you what he has in store for you and you might want to listen because it might not be what you want um but but then after that i eventually did the whole like i don't even remember how long it was four hours or something on like looking overall at a as as a whole at all of his academic writings which very very few historians have done very few historians have have delved have done more than scratch the surface of his academic writings but um man when you do that you get it well and 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 connected them to his his policies as a governor and then president. Yeah. Like nobody's really made those connections. Yeah, it's like that's so important. He's he's like you said, he's writing down what he wants to do and then he does it. Like it's so like that's so weird to me. Maybe not enough time has passed for people to do that. I don't know. I mean, 
there doesn't seem to be a reappraisal of Wilson yet. I feel like very few people are reappraising him. I mean, he seems to get mostly positive press. In, yeah, well, the, the know, only history the only circles. aspect of him that has been reappraised is his racism because which is good, but that's right. that's that's like, so tangential. Well, yeah, to me, it's like, like that is that is a reason to not like him. But but right. to act like because basically the since the establishment. Ever since Wilson's era, the establishment, both of, yeah. of politics, but also academia and much of, of the, the corporate media has basically been progressive. Like, I, I would argue that progressivism mm-hmm. has been the dominant default ideology of the United States right. since at least the 19 teens, if not the 19 yeah. yeah. I mean, you can, you can even argue yeah. it's starting with Teddy Roosevelt's presidency before Wilson. Um, but that mm-hmm. it, it, it had already, um, Progressivism had largely captured all of academia by about the 1890s or maybe at the latest 1900. Um, it then rapidly was taking over much of the the big media outlets. Um, and then, you know, it, it establishes itself, I think, firmly as the dominant default political ideology with FDR's election in 1932. Um, mm-hmm. But that... Like it, 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 all roads lead back to Wilson in a lot of ways, not just because of what he did during his presidency, but because of the ideological academic work he did for decades before he got into politics. That, like, this all mm-hmm. we're, we've been living in Woodrow Wilson's America ever since. Um, I did want to raise the possibility, though, that in the if there was a Wilsonian realignment, that I think maybe a better way to look at it instead of like pinpointing just his presidency. Or, or his election and saying, boom, that's, that's where the switch got flipped. I think it was more gradual and a little bit more multifaceted. Right. And I, I, that's what I think too. I, yeah. yeah. I, to me, you know, his, his election of the presidency was maybe the single most important piece of it, but it was the culmination, right? Yeah. Although I, I think FDR's election is the, is like the, the ultimate culmination of, I of progressive, just okay. like flat out locking down, you know, the American system. Mm. Um, so the way I think about it is there's a 26 year period in which the shift occurs. The, the, the shift doesn't occur quickly in a single year or a single election or even, a, mm-hmm. you know, a single presidency. Um, the shift unfolds over the course of about 26 years. And I would say it starts in 1896 with the mm-hmm. election of McKinley, who, even though in many ways he was, even though in many ways he was still a typical Gilded Age kind of president, he he ultimately gets gets pushed into war with Spain, which allows the large policy crowd like Teddy Roosevelt to start grabbing uh, control of American foreign policy and really making it an overseas British Empire style policy. Um, and then mm-hmm. then then you know after McKinley, progressivism starts to become a bigger force in American politics in both the T.R. and Wilson administrations. Um, American entry into World War One is another major kind of milestone in this shift. And then there's like a brief kind of Indian summer partial swing back in the 1920s, uh, particularly under Harding and Coolidge, um, where the American people express themselves at the polls vehemently against progressivism in those elections. Um, Harding wins in a landslide in 1920. Coolidge uh, uh, gets reelected. You know, Hard- Harding dies partway through his term. Coolidge comes in. Um, Coolidge gets, gets reelected in a landslide uh, in 1924. Herbert Hoover is kind of interesting because unlike most people, most, most people's impressions, um, 
Herbert Hoover is very much a progressive Republican. He, he's a fairly big government progressive mm-hmm. guy. Yeah, he's a little bit different from from Wilson, but not that much. He he worked in the Wilson administration. He was Woodrow Wilson's food czar during World War One. Mm. Um, he 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 ran the Food Administration, which was very powerful uh, war mobilization administration. And so there's this like brief kind of counterattack by the anti-progressive forces, call them conservative for lack of a better term, in the 20s. But th- mm-hmm. then with the, the landslide victory of FDR and the Democrats in Congress starting in 1932 and then being able to just dominate American politics for the next couple decades, that, that to me, the, the real culmination where progressivism is like locked down its status as the dominant mm. paradigm in, in throughout American institutions of power and influence um, is 1932. So, yeah, I would say the ball kind of gets rolling in, in 1896. It, it accelerates um, with TR's presidency. It accelerates more with Wilson's presidency in World War I, briefly swings back a bit for about a decade, and then election of FDR, beginning of the New Deal era, like at that point, that is when that is when not only not only does the democratic does progressivism become the dominant ideology, the default ideology, but that's also when the Democratic Party becomes the dominant establishment party, which you could Mm -hmm. argue they really weren't um, from, say, 1860 to 1932. The Republicans tended to be because because Wilson was a fluke. I mean, Wilson, Wilson being a Democrat was just kind of a fluke, right? Yeah, yeah. Basically, it was because of the Taft Teddy Roosevelt split, which split what normally would have been the the unified Republican vote, because everybody pretty much agrees that most of the people who voted for Teddy Roosevelt uh, would have ordinarily voted Republican uh, in 1912, you know, when, when he's running as, as a bull moose that, you know, yeah, maybe a few of, of the people who voted for Teddy Roosevelt uh, in 1912 on the bull moose ticket were, you know, independents or or even socialists or disaffected Democrats who were progressive Democrats, but maybe for one reason or another didn't like Wilson for some reason. Um, but that the vast majority, uh, I can't imagine yeah, why exactly, <laughs> but, the, but that the vast majority of, of voters who voted for TR would have just voted for whoever was the Republican. If TR as an, as an independent wasn't an option. So yeah, it's, it's 1932 when not just progressivism as an ideology, but the democratic party as its primary vehicle, uh, establishes itself as the dominant party. Because if you think about it from, from 1932 until now, the Democrats have been the dominant party. Obviously the Republicans have won the presidency a bunch of times during that time period. Um, and they've, they've had the majority in Congress, although less years than they've had the presidency. Um, they weren't very good at, at, winning Congress until the 1990s, but that even when Republicans are in the majority in Congress and have the White House, they're not able to do much of what they want to do usually. All you got to do is look at the, look mm-hmm. at the Trump years, right? Um, you know, how much did the Republicans get done, even though for part of that, they had they had legislature as well as the White House. They And, and it's because it's because even when when the Republicans take control of the White House and um, the Congress, there's there's a couple problems for them actually really having the power and influence that Democrats tend to have when they have control of, of those branches. One is that the Republicans, at least since 1932, have tended to be um, often not as good about staying unified uh, when they're in power mm. than the Democrats. Now, Democrats still have divisions, sure, but I think the Republicans are more prone to it where, you know, you get a lot of like the, the Mitt Romney type Republicans who are going to go against what you know, the, the, the mass of Republican voters really want and sabotage from within. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the fact that even when the Republicans have the White House and big majorities in Congress, 
okay, the entire mainstream media, save a couple of outlets, is still totally dead set against them. Almost all of the deep state, including those powerful agencies like the FBI and CIA, are dead set against them usually. Um, and so, you know, there's so much institutional resistance that they find themselves, and, and partly they're, they're um, partly also I think they're, the Republicans tend to be hamstrung by not, by not realizing what they're up against. Right. Like, I, I think mm-hmm. that was that was Trump's biggest problem in terms of being successful at getting stuff done he wanted to do is he just did not at all grasp the depth of what he was up against in terms of these forces in the media and in the deep state and, and in other powerful institutions like also academia and the public schooling system are also, you know, dominated by progressives. And um doesn't matter if the Republicans get elected, they're still going to be pushing out the same you know, ideological propaganda that they would otherwise. In fact, they amp it up, right? Think about how much, think about how much academia and, um, and the media amped up their propaganda during the Trump years in response. Well, it's because they, I think, I think they recognized at some level, at least, and probably some people consciously recognize that what they were responding to was, a potential for a complete realignment. I mean, that's sort of what I'm seeing these days. Um, I want to, uh, I wanted to also mention though, that, uh, there's one thing Republicans are very good at uniting around and that's just being against everything the Democrats do. <laughs> they're usually very good at that. Yeah. They're much more with exceptions, they're much more effective <laughs> when they're in opposition than they are when they're, when they're in the majority and they actually want to do stuff. They're better at, at blocking things yeah, exactly. I mean, but they're and they're just apparently going to continue that into the into the near future, at least according to Mitch McConnell. But uh, the the thing that I that that's where I actually do sympathize with even the most blue pilled, you know, blue check having progressive douche when they say that the Republican Party is a party of reactionaryism. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, that's very true. That's the one thing they're good at. Um, and it seems like from what you're saying, they've Basically, maybe not Republicans necessarily. Well, I guess it was Republicans. That basically is what they've been since Wilson, for the most part, just a repudiation of what has become the norm. Yeah, and that's that's why I'm saying, you know, especially post-1932, the Republicans become basically a permanent opposition party that's always on defense, even when they're in the majority. They're kind of always on defense. And so, you know, if... If if you're only ever playing defense, long term, you're not going to, you know, ever push things in your direction. The most effective you can be is just simply slowing down, you know, um, what the other side is pushing. And so, you know, Michael Malice does a great job of explaining this when he when he talks about this and says things like, you know, uh, conservatism or at least mainstream conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit, you know, that's a Very good often, one, yeah. mainstream conservatives are basically um, – they're defending the previous accomplishments of previous versions of progressivism or previous generations of progressives. Um, and- I'm sorry to cut you off, um, but that is perfect in how we account for a figure like Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean you know, Reagan was – because some people, some people try to count Reagan as another example of a realignment and I'm thinking no. That like the only ripple effect that had was the deification of him in the early 2000s. I don't feel I I have not heard a single conservative I know invoke the name of Reagan except with contempt. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a couple of good books that debunk this myth of a Reagan revolution. There's one I think 
it's even called the myth of, of the Reagan revolution, something like that. And then, um, and I, for- good title. I forget yeah. that author's name. And then there's, there's another one that was written by David Stockman, who, who's a really interesting guy, um, who was part of the Reagan administration. Um, I think I want to say was, was Reagan's like budget guy or something like that. Like his, whatever it is, the, the office of budget or whatever that the president has. And basically he made the he makes the point as someone who had an inside look at it and and this other book uh, the myth of the reagan revolution is as i think done more by like an historian looking at it from outside but basically in different ways they make the same point that the the dramatic change that reagan represented was really more in terms of rhetoric than anything else that you know that he didn't really yeah he you know cut some things here and there and you know shifted some stuff a little bit out of social programs into military spending or whatever like that but as far as like you know really reversing even the great society let alone the new deal there's very little you can point to in eight years of reagan like there's there's not a not only did he not when when just to give an example when when reagan was running for the presidency uh, in 1980. He proposed doing away with several entire cabinet level departments. Um, one of them was the Department of Education, and one of them was the Federal Department of Energy, I believe. And by the way, at the time, hmm. those two departments had only been in existence for a few years. I think they were both created in the 70s. I think they both came in under Carter. Hmm. Reagan's immediate predecessor. So he was talking about doing away with the two at the time most recently created departments. And so he comes in, he's president for eight years. Not only did he not do away with either of those departments, they got bigger budgets consistently the entire time he was president. So, you know, the the idea that Reagan is, it, it's another case, sort of like what the media does with Trump, and I'm sure future historians will do with Trump, where they're going to act like this was like this fundamental overturning of the entire system, where in reality, in in the case of both Reagan and Trump, the revolution is way more in, in just style and rhetoric than it is in actual policy or what the government's up to and all that. Right. Yeah. And, um, the, uh, the interesting thing about, um, about Trump in that regard is, is that he still does represent the beginning of something new, I think, um, because he didn't govern very uniquely, but he, he was very demagogic in his, in his rhetoric and style. Yeah. He definitely was, was like a revolution in, in style, rhetoric, communication, all that. And that I think is the beginning of that's the key right there. That's the beginning of a realignment is a revolution in style. That's what Jackson represented in a lot of ways. That sounds like that's what Wilson represented in a lot of ways. Well, um, let me throw throw something else out there. Another thing I've been thinking of in terms of historical uh, parallels to what we're talking about is that the comparison and contrast at the turn of the last century between progressives and populists, because yes. That to me is, is a, it's a very interesting thing to compare and contrast those, those two political movements and factions. Um, and then mm-hmm. also to, to look at, you know, parallels in our current situation. Um, because to me, what the, the American populace of the late 19th and early 20th century, what they represent is a potential new paradigm mm-hmm. of politics. And then, you know, that started popping up as a, as a political movement. Uh, really first in the 1880s, and then it reached its peak right around the turn of the century and then starts to gradually fade in the first couple decades. And 
Actually, I have to I have to throw out a uh, um a bit of a correction. It actually began in the 1870s. That oh, okay. was really when it started to kick off. Yeah, yeah. And I only I'm only you know doing the well actually because that was my actually my first episode that I ever did for History Impossible was out was about the beginning of that movement and how I mean I, I crassly called it the original Donald Trump and talked about this populist in California named Dennis Kearney who. If you read his rhetoric, it, it mirrors Trump's 2015, 2016 rhetoric almost exactly, just about Chinese people instead of Mexicans and Muslims. Hmm. Um, and he, uh, but the, but the point is, is, um, and actually this is good because I wanted to tie this in and I wanted to ask you what you thought of how populist backlashes, they seem to happen with relative regularity and they always seem to presage a political realignment. And what the historian Neil Ferguson pointed out, and I totally cribbed this from him and I gave him credit, but I cribbed this from him that the populist backlash has usually about five distinct ingredients that are going on. And in the 1870s and arguably also in the 2010s, we had uh, increasing inequality, a perception at least of rampant political corruption, uh, a migration immigration rise. Um, an economic crisis, a major economic crisis, and then the rise of demagogues. And I think it's very hard to say that the populists of the 1870s and the populists of the 2010s and now the 2020s are really too dissimilar in that sense, because in terms of like the forces that are behind them or, or, or those factors rather. So I, I wonder what your take is on how what you were saying about populism being a sort of opposite of progressivism, how they fed off each other, how the populist backlash, if it did lead to the rise of the progressive realignment, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I've actually got a, got a lot to say on all this stuff. Um, okay, because cool. A lot of the stuff are things I've been thinking about a lot lately. And also things I talk about, you know, not just on social media and in and, and various podcast episodes. But these are things I actually bring up um, when I teach US history too. in, in cool. my day job, I, I bring some of this stuff up, you know, of, of how I think about these things. And so one of the things I would I would bring up is um, that you've got in every political party or movement, there's always a split between the esoteric and the exoteric sides of that mm. party or movement, right? There's always some amount of disconnect between what the rank and file members of that party or movement are all about, what their priorities are, what their issues are, and, and where they stand on them, and then the elite leadership of the party or movement, right? Now, and I think also, by the way, that this applies to all sorts of different organizations and institutions, not just political parties and things. I think you can find it in, in labor unions, in, in churches and religious organizations, et cetera. Basically, I think any human group, institution, movement that's more than a handful of people in number mm-hmm. is going to start to develop this sort of iron law of oligarchy phenomenon where an elite emerges. And this, by the way, happens just as much in an organization that's nominally of a democratic ideology than one that's not. It doesn't really seem to matter. You'll always get this iron law of oligarchy uh, emerging and that there's always going to be some amount. Um, the way I think about it is like the esoteric side of a party, the, the elite leaders, and then the exoteric side, which is what like the grassroots are, are about in terms of mm-hmm. what they think the party should be all about. It's always a Venn diagram. There's always, there has to be some overlap. You can't have a party exist where the rank and file are in complete opposition to their, their own elites on everything, right? That would just not cohere. Whereas, um, but, but on the other hand, 
there's always some amount of of non-overlap of their Venn diagram of what they believe the party should be doing and what their priorities are. And it varies from particular, you know, times and, and institutions, how much the Venn diagram is overlapping versus how much it's not, right? Now, when you look at a political party and there's a lot of overlap, in other words, there's not a huge amount of divergence between the esoteric and exoteric sides of the party, then populism is less likely to really be a force because the rank and file feels like their elites of their party really are on the same page as them, have the same priorities and stances and things, right? But when the Venn diagram starts to spread apart more and more, and there's an increasing disconnect between the party rank and file and the party elites, that's when populism will show up in, and it can take various forms. It can take the form of an insurgency within an existing party. It can also take the form of a new party being started that draws members away from a party where there's dissatisfaction because of the increasing divergence of the esoteric and exoteric. So to me, for example, what, what Trump represented was particularly over the George W. Bush years, the Republican party elite got so far disconnected from Mm. regular you know, blue and white collar Republican Party members that what Trump instinctively this this is the one thing I think he's kind of an idiot savant at because I, I think he's 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 pretty <laughs> dumb at, and ignorant in most things. But he's he's got this like brilliant, like Rain Man magical talent to <laughs> to like figure out how to um how to pander to mm. people who are not being pandered yes. to people who are being neglected, you know, mm-hmm. where, the, where the institutions and the establishment are pandering to everybody else, but to identify a well, large and- dissatisfied group and target them. Because what he did to get the nomination was he basically, of the Republican Party in 2016, he basically just went down right down the line of what are all the issues that the rank and file of the party are really, really hyped up about that their leaders are absolutely refusing to to address mm. and represent them on, right? So basically, to me, what populism really represents is people feeling that they are not being heard and represented absolutely. by the existing institutions. And um, it, it also, also, I think it, it reveals when, um, just in general, when an existing system has become you know things like government institutions in my mind they're they're always corrupt and dysfunctional but there's degrees of that right there's degrees mm-hmm, of that mm-hmm. there's a difference between a relatively functional thing that most people are satisfied with and a thing that's just a complete basket case of of corruption and dysfunction and i think populism also represents when institutions have have become way more corrupt and dysfunctional than they used to be and people sense mm-hmm. that and so you know that's a perception of corruption right there. Yeah. And then when you have like the events, like the financial crisis, you know, then, you know, that's just going to further push it along. Uh, I, I, you know, honestly, when I think back on those like five ingredients that Neil Ferguson talked about, I, I, I do feel like maybe we should add natural disasters into there too. You know, pandemic is just going to accelerate that sort oh, of yeah, thing. Potentially, for yeah. example. Yeah. I mean, any, any kind yeah. of a big problem that the existing system and establishment is like blatantly not fixing mm-hmm. and maybe potentially even making worse, right? Can can cause yeah. it to be discredited in the eyes of huge numbers of people. And and it's interesting because like you would think that the Great Depression would be something that would push a populist backlash into high gear, but 
a lot of the other stuff, the other ingredients were not mm. present at that time. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll defer to you on this, but the sense I get is that there wasn't really a sense of mass corruption within the government. People just didn't like Herbert Hoover and they blamed him for the depression, even though he had no control over that really. Um, like the impression I have though, is that there wasn't this sense that the government was hopelessly corrupt in the late 1920s, early 1930s. Yeah. And I think especially once FDR came in, you know, and I'm not somebody uh, who, who believes that the new deal really was, was a good thing for the economy. I think the new deal in various ways uh, made the, the depression worse, but, but what FDR, what he was very good at was communicating and giving people the sense that the new yes. deal is, is going to fix things, even if objectively it's not, but he was mm-hmm. so persuasive that I think a lot of people during the 1930s in America, it, it let some steam out of the pot. Now, obviously, there still were people right. like Huey Long and, and other, you know, populist firebrands, <laughs> yeah. right? So it's not like that yeah. kind of thing wasn't there. But I think FDR, just as a skillful politician and, and rhetorician, was able to kind of, you know – I challenge anybody who, no matter how much one may like or dislike FDR is irrelevant, I challenge anyone to listen to those fireside chats and not feel a sense of warmth. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just turn off your brain. Don't think about what he's saying. Just think about how he's communicating to you. And it's brilliant. It was, in some ways, it's the most brilliant form of propaganda ever to exist because it feels like Mr. Rogers. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, he was, he had the perfect. Uh, communication skill and style for the dominant medium of that era. The dominant medium mm-hmm. of that era was was radio. He was great at radio. You know, he might not have done as well in in an earlier or later mm-hmm. era where radio was not the the primary way a president would communicate with the people. But it was just like you know a luck of timing that right as radio is overwhelmingly dominating American media, here comes this guy. Who happens to be very right. good at that? Maybe it. Maybe there's there's an analogy or a comparison to be made in that Trump with Twitter. Oh my God! It's like it's one of those things when I try to explain to people, like I I, I say to them, I'm like I understand because I have a lot of most. I would say most of the people in my life or my friends, I should say, are they skew progressive? They skew blue. Um, you know, I I skew out there. I don't really. It's the point is is that I tell them that Trump is. Or was, let's be honest, you know, rest in peace. Uh, it was one of the best tweeters of all time. Yeah. And not because what he said was good. That's the key there. I'm not advocating the stuff he said. The stuff he said was largely stupid, but he was good yeah. at it. He was good at being a stupid boomer on Twitter. Like he was the best at it. I mean, Michael Malice brings up this a lot. A lot of people have brought this up that the best tweet of all time is when he said, I have nothing but love for all the losers and the haters. It's not their fault. They were born fucked up. (laughs) Which is like, you can't not love that if you appreciate, you know, like, I don't know, irony, I guess, or, or, or meta irony or something. I don't know. It's just, it's so silly. Well, it's an interesting comparison between him and FDR in terms of he, he essentially tweeted his way into the White House. FDR, you know, public speaking his way into the, you know, rhetoric his way into the into the White House. Um, the difference, though, comes in that FDR was so much smarter of a politician just from a, mm-hmm. you know, a, an effectiveness standpoint that and a human being. I'll say, yeah, too, I mean, he's obviously a much more intelligent, yeah. educated guy, even though you know, I think in many yeah. ways he's, he's more evil than Trump um, did, did more damage to America. <laughs> but. But FDR was able to, you know, rhetoric his way into the White House 
but then continue to use that skill um, in order to accomplish the things he wanted to accomplish. Like he's one of the most effective presidents ever in terms of getting done things he wanted to get done. Whereas Trump, he had, and, and partly I think it's because FDR was much more knowledgeable and experienced about how the American system actually works. You know, he had, he had been governor mm-hmm. of New York. He had, he had been um, in the Wilson administration. He was, he was Wilson's assistant secretary of the Navy during world war one. He had much more of a, of a, of an understanding of how Washington and the administrative apparatus works. And so he was able to to leverage the skill that got him there, continue to leverage it for all those years to actually do stuff as president, whereas Trump had just had no no strategy, no plan. He had no understanding of how any of these institutions works. And so, yeah, you can, you know, be a be a world champion Twitter troll and get yourself elected. But he was never able to figure out how to how to then continue to use his Twitter skill to actually leverage it to get stuff done at the policy and institutional level. So basically, mm-hmm. he spent four years just throwing red meat to his base on Twitter and his his base were you know largely so deluded that they thought just just because Trump continued to like own Twitter for those four years, that means he's <laughs> winning. It's like, no, he OK, he's winning the, the, the Twitter sphere, but he did very little in terms of actually translating any of that into, you know, policy accomplishments. And I think this transitions nicely into sort of trying to pretend that we exist maybe 20 years in the future where we talk about the potential that there is indeed a realignment happening right now um, that we're in the midst of. And that uh, I, I do think that that sort of the, the potential for any kind of accomplishment we can pin on Trump is that he was the spark or possibly, again, the gasoline poured on the fire of uh, the political realignment that may be happening right now. Because as you say, he he's throwing red uh, red meat to his base constantly. And just what he's doing is he's essentially priming them to just forget all the values and principles that they might have identified with being a Republican back in the day, you know, back in the Bush years, for example. He he effectively – I mean this is – we see this playing out right now. The, the elephant in the room, as you effectively called it, um, we were talking last night of the Ukrainian the, – uh, the Russo-Ukrainian war right now. He – Trump, I would say, with the help of, you know, other demagogues like Tucker Carlson and so forth, has effectively turned the base Republican party into the anti-war party, something that – as a millennial who was in high school when the war in Iraq kicked off, like that is bizarre. It's downright bizarre. I never thought I would see that happen just because of the time and place I, you know, was raised in, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And I'm, and I'm not saying that, you know, conservatives haven't been anti-war. I mean, one of the best anti-war rhetoricians in the late two thousands was Ron Paul, you know, like the, you know, anyone who, you know, skews libertarian has been anti-war forever. So it's not that I associate being conservative with being pro-war. It's that I associate that coalition, uh, the the conservative coalition of being the pro-war party because a Republican started, you know, the longest war we've ever been right. in. Um, and it's just been really fascinating to see that script flip. Now, I don't. And I'm, you know, you and I were talking about this too. And you coined one of the greatest terms of all time, woke hawks. <laughs> I'm which, so proud of that one. Which, 
<laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one. We got to get that trending. Uh, hashtag woke Hawkeyes. <laughs> but the, the, the thing is, is that that's not that too weird. That's not that weird. At least when you look at the political establishment or the media establishment, uh, that skews progressive, like openly, uh, today in 2022 being super firebrand woke hawk about this war between Russia and Ukraine, because a lot of these people supported and or voted to invade Iraq. They were pro-war. They were just as pro-war as the guy who started it, essentially. Um, and that sort of shows, again, I think, that there's something to the idea that it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican between 1912 and 2022. It's that – or rather 2016, maybe. It's that you – are in the progressive milieu. You're in a milieu. We can call it progressive if we want. It, it, you can use whatever term you want. I think progressive is the most accurate, uh, ideologically speaking, but I think that it's, um, and that's a tricky word, by the way. People get hung up on it because, and I get it, but the thing is, I think it's the best way to describe it. So it doesn't matter which side you're on within that milieu. You are all, you know, kind of voting the same way, supporting things the same way. And frankly, when you flip the script so fundamentally the way, you know, Trump and his ilk did, you're going to see some very significant changes that aren't going to make a lot of sense in the moment. And I think that's what's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think, you know, if I'm right that the, the, the last like big total paradigm shift really unfolded over 26 years, then, you know, we're in the middle or maybe still somewhat in the early phases of something that's going to play out for, for, many more years to come before it's really finally you know the the realignment is is completed and and i think though i do i, I do think the internet though might speed it up there is always that to keep in sure mind. yeah i mean definitely things can can unfold yeah. more quickly you know just look at the collapse of of the uh the soviet empire as like something that like, right. real quick you know happened within just the space of a few years but i wanted to call back to the Turn of the last century, populist versus progressives thing, right? And, and make oh, some right. more before we make, forget make some that. more um, uh, points and comparisons. So you know, you you probably know all this stuff, but but just for the listeners who aren't familiar with this, so you have populism pops up on the American political scene as a as a new kind of force. Um, you know, now now I know as early as the eighteen seventies really starts to become become a bigger factor though um, in the next couple of decades, and. Then progressivism pops up in academia around the same time, but progressivism doesn't show up in, in like actual politics for a little bit later. And so basically what happens is populism starts off in American politics a little bit earlier, and then it kind of crests and starts to fade. Progressivism pops up a little bit later and starts to peak later, but there's this overlap where populism and progressivism are both significant factors in American politics. There's this overlap period of, you know, really like the 19 aughts and the 1910s. Um, mm -hmm. And just for the, for the listeners, as far as like comparing populism and progressivism, it's easy to look at them superficially and think they're very similar. And there, there certainly, there was some overlap in terms of their ideas and even some of the personnel involved, but and, you know, in broad brushstrokes, both populism of back then and progressivism, they both wanted a larger, more powerful, more active U.S. government than existed uh, at the time. So they're – Here's the thing. They still do yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. The yeah exact, good point. They're, they're in agreement on they want a bigger, more powerful government than currently exists. Um, and and the, How much bigger can yeah, we get? Exactly. Come yeah. on. <laughs> go full, go full yeah. uh, WEF totalitarian, I guess. 
But um, yeah, the 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 populists and progressives did line up in the early 20th century on particular issues. Um, mm-hmm. Like, for example, both supported creating an income tax. That, that's one example. Um, also, there was a lot of overlap between them in that uh, most populists and many, you know, probably a majority, but not all for sure. Most populists and, and probably a majority of progressives in the early 20th century favored alcohol prohibition. So um, mm. there's overlap on that. So there's specific issues where you can see the populists and progressives aligned on that particular issue but there's there's big differences overall though in terms of what their priorities were who they were really representing and um what they thought this big government they wanted should do so just in general the populace tended to be much more likely to come from the more rural areas and small towns and so because of that the populist strongholds were the south and the the interior west whereas the progressives in the say turn of the last century the progressives are much more numerous in the northeast and the west coast now what does that sound Mm. like in terms of today's politics right where (laughs) where are the trump voter populace they're in the interior west and in the south where are the progressives Mm -hmm. they're in the northeast and the west coast like it's literally the same thing so so to me it's very much a case of history rhyming right um the Mm -hmm. the current progressive versus populist uh uh, split and then another parallel i'll point out is um I think you can make a case, you know, if, as you were saying before, we see Trump as this like harbinger, not not that he's going to complete the, the realignment, but in a way he sort of gets the ball rolling on it. Um, mm-hmm. I think then you can make an argument that William Jennings Bryan uh, fulfills the same mm. role um, in, in the earlier populist versus progressive moment where – um, you know, his right. his campaign in 1896 was seen as like a fundamentally different campaign in terms of mm-hmm. his his not just the content of his his platform, but also in terms of how he did it. It was it was kind of a new controversial thing that he personally can't. He was the first presidential candidate to really personally campaign heavily. Um William McKinley mm. did what was actually the norm at the time, which was to stay home and basically have your surrogates go out on your behalf. You know, the thing, the thing before yes. McKinley, up, up till McKinley was, um, you know, that you almost, if you were running for president in America, you would almost pretend like you weren't personally involved, you know, like you weren't even personally trying mm-hmm. to do it. You just have your surrogates go campaign. And then, you know, maybe like, like McKinley did give the occasional speech to the press from your front porch. William Jennings Bryan, traveled personally all over the country by train Mm. giving speeches to the people constantly and that was seen as like a completely radical new way uh, to run for presidency and the forces of the establishment saw the forces of the establishment at the time were terrified of brian um it's it's hard for us to (laughs) to wrap our heads around today but like whether it's the the economic establishment the jp morgan type people or whether it's the the more establishment politicians they were terrified of brian in a way that um is somewhat rem- reminiscent to the way the modern establishment was terrified of trump and and ultimately right. brian was never able to get get himself elected president despite trying three times trump did get himself elected president but then found himself completely you know unable to to do any of what he wanted to do so both trump and brian ultimately made a giant impact on the system created all kinds of new you know precedents and things terrified the establishment but ultimately failed to actually make any lasting impact other than in terms of style and all that and i was going to say um if i remember right teddy roosevelt 
took that method, the Brian method, and perfected it, basically, right? Because he was a per- he was a personal uh, campaigner, right? Am I remembering that? Yeah, correctly? he adopted the um, the populist, you know, tactics in a lot of ways. So we could have a new TR in the post, as it were. We don't yeah, know. Yes. So in other words, like an establishment liberal, but mm-hmm. who adopts or a Republican. It could be a Republican. That's the other thing that we should keep in mind. It could be a Republican who does it. I doubt it, but yeah, you know, yeah. But I, I mean, a liberal in the sense of represents the centrist neocon neolib yes. uh, consensus establishment perspective, but that dresses it up in populist sounding Mm. rhetoric and in populist methods. So, you know, somebody who is going to govern like Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell, but who Mm -hmm. has a style that's more Trumpian. So what that could be then, if we're speculating, that would be an example of really just a realignment of style, but no meaningful ideological realignment. It would be if the realignment that we're speculating could happen was essentially a bust and just doesn't actually occur. Yeah, yeah. If that happens. Although also okay. it, it could be that it doesn't work this time. The way, mm, you know, the, yeah. the progressives who at the end of the day, um, I think the, the progressives were the more establishment force than the populace at the time. And, you know, I, I think the populace generally did represent more average people. Now, you know, it's just rural people for the most part it wasn't really average people in the cities they were representing, but that the populace really were in good faith trying to represent the wishes of their constituents, whereas the progressives have mm. this much more elitist paternalist concept of representation, which, again, goes back to Woodrow Wilson's ideas, which is that, sure. yeah, the people get to vote, but only after we tell them what they ought to vote for. And also in cases right. where the people don't vote the way they're told, we'll figure out ways to basically override the the popular will. So. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, it, it begs the question of um, like, what would a, an actual realignment look like if it was successful? And you know what, now that I think about it, it probably is too early to tell. Cause like you said, last time this happened, it was like a 26, possibly 36 year, you know, project. We, it's hard to say, um, like if it is happening though i i do have my reservations about it as i think we all should because as you said or you know as we were talking about populists and progressives are peas in a pod when it comes to wanting more stronger government and thus a curtailment of individualism essentially it's it, it's the first time i actually i should have mentioned this earlier but i just remembered the first time i noticed something was happening at least that i believed something was happening was when I heard both people hard on the left and hard on the right, both bemoaning the role and importance of individualism in our society. And that's when I was like, okay, if they can agree on that, then something's different. Like, and it's because progressives and populists tend to agree that individualism is suspect. And that seems to be the the, the trend for me. Yeah, yeah, definitely, you know, they they tend to be collectivistic ideologies just of different, you know, diff, diff, right. different flavors and and emphases and everything like that. Um and it it just occurred to me, you know, in, in real real time here kind of kind of thinking out loud, um that, you know, I, I mentioned towards the beginning of our conversation my kind of idea of having multiple uh, cycles going on on different you know mm-hmm. time spans that occasionally line up and coincide where a bunch of them are realigning it at roughly the same time and there's another even bigger picture cycle 
that I, I hadn't thought to add to that list until just now, which is the cycle of rise, decline, and fall of empires. And that, of that, course, that yes. also is the United States in the middle of a significant imperial decline, potentially even fall? And is that a giant realignment that throws mm. an extra level of potential volatility, right? In right. the same way that the collapse and fall of the Soviet Union did for those parts of the world, where, you know, you got all these other giant changes occurring uh, cyclically, and then boom, in this particular case, it lines up with the actual decline and fall of the American empire. And um, right. I want to share with you a, a quote I, I pulled up because I have it saved on, on uh, my computer. Um, this is from hmm. Carol Quigley's famous book, Tragedy and Hope. A History of the World in mm. Our Time, which probably um, many of my listeners for sure have probably heard of. It's, it's kind of notorious in certain circles. <laughs> and um, this is near the beginning of the book. He he lays out, um, as, as a lot of historians in the 19th and early 20th century did, had these like ideas of societies or civilizations going through kind of identifiable stages, right? Where there's like a, there's like a rise and there's a, sort of like a peak period and then there's a period of decline and whatever like that. And, and he talks about it. And um, I'm trying to remember, I think he, he gives like four stages of societies going through like growth and then eventually stagnation and, and decay and, and all that. And he, this quote was so interesting. Um, I was rereading a little bit of tragedy and hope recently. And this quote, which I had previously like kind of just passed over given recent years uh, events this quote jumped out at me in a way it never did before when i when i'd read tragedy and hope previously so in this quote he's talking about the shift in a civilization from what he calls the age of expansion to the age of conflict mm. and the age of conflict is where the institutions start to break down all that sort of thing and, and, and listen listen to what he says as far as like what you see and keep in mind, too, he was writing this in 1966, which is arguably right around the time that the American system starts to to decline from an age of expansion mm -hmm. into an age of conflict. So he was at like the very end of the, of the age of expansion. Um, so anyway, he writes this, quote, It is this decline in the rate of expansion of a civilization which marks its passage from the age of expansion to the age of conflict. The, this latter is the most complex, most interesting Oh, actually, you know what? I just realized since we're on Zoom, I can screen share this quote with you. <laughs> cool. Yeah, and okay. I've, I've got it with a little picture of Carol Quigley um, because I, I sometimes put this up, you know, projected to my students. So anyway, it is uh, this decline in the rate of expansion of a civilization which marks its passage from the age of expansion to the age of conflict. This latter, the age of conflict, is the most complex most interesting and most critical of all the periods in the life cycle of a civilization. It is marked by four chief characteristics. Now listen to these things and, and then you tell me <laughs> if, if these things can be found in, in current American events. Four chief characteristics march the, the transition to the age of conflict. Back to Quigley. A, it is a period of declining rate of expansion. B, it is a period of growing tensions and class conflicts. C, it is a period of increasingly frequent and increasingly violent imperialist wars. And D, it is a period of growing irrationality, pessimism, superstitions, and otherworldliness. 
all of these phenomena appear in the core area of a civilization before they appear in the more peripheral portions of that society. So in other words, why does it seem to those of us who live in, in red areas, why the people who live in, in the major, you know, blue metropolises of the Northeast and the West Coast and D.C., why do they seem to just have lost their minds? Um, whereas, mm. you know, us, us in the red areas are supposed to be the superstitious ones and, and the, you know, crazy religious ones and whatever, right? And yet he says it's in the core first that you see growing irrationality, pessimism, superstitions, and otherworldliness. And only later do those, those things sort of spread out to the peripheral areas. So mm. anyway, um, that's, that's definitely, um, <laughs> that's stark. <laughs> I'll say that. I mean, it's funny because you just made me think like, like, yeah, like the, the, um, the, the core of America is considered to be the, you know, the, the red core, if you will, t- tends to be seen as superstitious and so forth. And yet I recently just heard of this and I don't have a, fa- I don't have a Jamie like Joe Rogan does. So I can't fact check this right now, but I recently read something by the writer Batya Ungar Sargon who recently wrote a book that I've been planning to read called Bad News, How Woke Media is Destroying Democracy. And she's definitely of the more populist bent of these days, uh, but from the left, which, by the way, that's a whole other realm of the populist backlash we currently find ourselves in. We can't underrate Bernie Sanders and his role in all this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he so. seems to have completely been been co-opted and, and emasculated yeah, and whatever. Yeah. So so um, he as an individual is pretty much done as far as relevance. Right. But yeah. Right. Someone else. Um, he played a part is what I'm saying. Yeah. Though. Yeah. That's yeah what but I'm somebody else tapping into the same sort of thing that he right. did, who, who's more uh, consistent and principled and not as easily mm-hmm. co-opted by the establishment would be another wild card, you know, and uh, and it well, never say never, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> I mean, yep. I mean, I think as long as Trump is in the game, which he still is, despite being an old ass fat man, he, you know, he's going to be the elephant in the room no matter what people do. So I don't think we're going to see anything meaningful come from the Democrats. They won't let a Bernie Sanders happen right now is what I'm saying. They, they will just do a repeat of what they did in 2015, 2016, where they threw him under the bus um, within the DNC. But my point, though, about Batya Ungar Sargon's writing was that she was talking about how quietly and nobody seeming to notice evangelical churches across the South, the Bible Belt, are becoming more inclusive to LGBT people. Yeah. And I can't speak to that. Like I said, I don't live there and I haven't fact checked it. But the point is, let's assume that's true. And maybe you can speak to this. I, I mean, I know you, you're like me. You're not religious, but maybe you know people or something. But the um, what that says to me is that the progressive, the socially progressive project of being pro LGBT back in the an anti, you know, bigoted Republicans who are meanwhile. You know, fucking male prostitutes in the Minneapolis bathroom, but regardless, uh, like, you know, that battle, I mean, it wasn't just the passage of the Supreme Court, uh, case legalizing gay marriage. Culturally, if the Bible Belt is becoming more inclusive of LGBT people, the battle, the war is won. There's nothing left to do yeah. because that's what you did. You, you won. And I, the fact that nobody's – if that's happening and nobody's celebrating that and yet are still acting like they are raging revolutionaries, like fighting against the system when they are the system, like that says to me – that says a lot of things. In a word, I would call it out-of-touch decadence. Well, in three words, but well, yeah. <laughs> well, the the really um, you know, current super woke people 
their their whole ideology is, is very Maoist in a lot of ways. And and one of the mm. things that I think is very Maoist about their ideology is they seem to believe in this idea of just perpetual revolution. And so right. they can never like take a take a victory lap and and take a bow and and also never you know acknowledge that they've convinced their former enemies to to change their mind about something so yeah it's like as soon as the gay marriage thing went through and you know pretty quickly it seems like most you know republicans or whatever like okay i guess that's the thing now um it's not you know not a big deal to them anymore um surprisingly quickly um the woke progressives didn't even take a moment to be like hey you know congratulations all you uh, alabama people who now are more or less okay with this uh good for you and let's all like take a breather and just you know kind of yeah and be yeah. friends it, and then show that we're all in, on the same instead, page with each other instead, yeah the next the next day they were like if you don't believe that you know there's 27 genders you're a, a nazi you know it's like yeah yeah I just don't understand. Not, I mean, I do not understand. Even acknowledging that, for example, when when Obama ran for president the first time in two thousand eight, he was opposed to gay marriage, or the famous uh, case of Hillary Clinton not coming out as fa- as being in favor of gay marriage until two thousand thirteen. Right. Like it's it's it really does speak to like the reality that you know he had his issues, but something that Andrew Breitbart coined that politics is downstream from culture. I don't know if that's always been true, but it's definitely true now. And I think this thing we're talking about really shows it. And I, I, that's why I kind of understand the impulse for, especially now, uh, conservatives, namely Republicans, to just engage on culture war issues because it's easier to win those when your opposition is pretending like they're still fighting a perpetual revolution, like you're saying, which is funny, by the way, that like they, that, that, that like they do see themselves in a way as Maoist. I mean, I have seen, you know, people making those overt comparisons about themselves in a positive way when they don't realize that the only reason Mao started the perpetual revolution that was the cultural revolution was to regain the power that he lost after the Great Leap Forward. It was just a power play yeah. <laughs> on his part. Doesn't make it any less nefarious. Don't get me wrong. It's just that it's really funny that they think that it was sincere. That's all. Yeah, yeah, and just you know, from my my own um, uh, perspective, you know, because I I live in North Florida, which is the more southern part of Florida. Sure. Um, the county the county <laughs> I live in is is relatively cosmopolitan and has a lot of northern transplants, so it's a little bit unusual mm-hmm. for this area. But you know, I'm surrounded by counties, including the county that I work in, that are very you know deeply red uh, in in the political sense, and that you know lots of people. Are are evangelical or whatever, um, and yeah, I've noticed the same thing. Where it, it basically, to me, is at the end of the day, it's a generational switch. Where the mm-hmm. older generation of evangelicals were much more, you know, dug in, dead set against ever being nice to gay people or whatever, and the younger generation, they're still, you know, devoutly evangelical Christian or whatever, but and and they might still, you know. I think still would dig in their heels on certain things like abortion and, and a few other sure. things. Sure. That's, that's a, that's a thing that's never moved. Yeah. That's a fascinating thing. I just want to throw that out there. The abortion question, it's still like 50, 50 and it hasn't changed. And I don't think it's going to, but to, to yeah, continue yeah, your that, point, that's sorry. A, that's its own like special unique issue in so many ways. Um, but, but it seems like on a lot of things, particularly just on kind of just, just in general, you know, tolerating gay people and not overtly, sure protesting them getting married or whatever um yeah that's yeah. just a generational thing where where you know a 20 year old evangelical today is just a completely different uh type of person than a 20 year old evangelical was 30 years ago 
And that shift is something that makes me happy. Like, as I said, like I, you know, that should be seen as a victory. I, I mean, I've, you know, I've grown up with gay people my whole life. So obviously I'm a, you know, that that's my perspective coming into this. Like I see it as self-evidently true that they deserve, you know, the same amount of dignity as anybody else and so forth. Um, and I like the idea. I like the liberalization in that particular, with this particular issue, but with other things too, I suppose, in some ways, uh, the liberalization of the conservative faction of American politics. But there is something that concerns me. And I wrote a piece in my Substack about it that, you know, I, I think you, you read it, right? I don't remember if you read it. Uh, or yeah. Not. Yeah. That, well, yeah, the one where I said the post-liberal order is probably not your friend. And that's because I – what I was, I think, saying essentially, I was trying to lump together this sort of populist backlash specifically from the right. And there's a wild cast of characters there, especially in this realm called the post-left. That is an area of Twitter that is so fun to follow because it's just so interesting. Um, but it's all – all of it is very reactionary, very anti-progressive. So, you know – one point for them there. But the thing is, the more I listened to a lot of them and read a lot of them, especially from the folks over at Claremont, the Claremont Institute, the more I realized that all I'm seeing in terms of uh, prescriptions on how to live up to these you know, values and standards and traditions and so forth that they say they stand for, like their prescriptions is just saying this is should be what we focus on. And it's just always couched in very vague terms that just sound like a statement of first principles ad nauseum. And that's fine. But the thing is, I started to break down what this post-liberal populist order is wanting in this potential for realignment. If they are the – if they're the drivers of the realignment, what they're pushing for is just garden variety social conservatism is what it sounds like to me. And if they really want to push it to the point where the state plays a role, then you're talking about something closer to theocracy at that point. And that's what disturbs me about the populist right right now. Yeah. Yeah. That I'm, I'm with you on, on being very uncomfortable with that particular strain or wing, um, you know, cause there, there's, there's obviously some different, different wings, you know, there's, there's the more kind of like, libertarian or classically liberal types and, you know, who I tend to be more sympathetic with overall. Well, the most contempt I see directed at libertarians these days isn't from Bernie Sanders types. I mean, I know a few people who hate libertarians and anarcho-capitalists. Sorry. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm more aligned with you than I am with them in a lot of ways, but I, I just like they... The, the the contempt I see directed at libertarians and anarcho-capitalists seems to be coming mostly from the dissident and populist right. Again, it's they they want the big state power just like the progressives do. They just have different priorities. Yeah, and that's been very interesting to see that level of contempt directed in that direction. It's I mean that's fine because you know the Republicans weren't doing very well with that kind of politics, so maybe they need to embrace something new. I understand that, but I just don't. It, it it's just it strikes me as like the only alternative being offered within the conservative space within that part of the conservative space because again it's there's no way to say is this going to be the driving force forever i don't know if it is but if it is we're talking about something you know akin to something that the judge adrian vermule wants which is uh, catholic integralism stuff like that yeah people or people who 
seem to really want to actually create something that looks like the handmaid's tale or that looks like a right. or that looks like a christian christian house of sod or or a christian taliban situation yeah. or something like this you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and the, the people that want to undo the entire enlightenment and psych and scientific revolution that yeah. want to go back to something pre that or even even fully medieval um and it's like don't get me wrong I've got all kinds of, of criticisms of aspects of the enlightenment and scientific revolution, um, more so the, sure. but, but the, the idea of like, we don't like some aspects of the enlightenment legacy. Therefore let's throw the entire thing out in some, you know, prob- probably <laughs> yeah. ludicrous, impossible attempt to turn back the clock a thousand sure. years. It's like, I'm sorry, you're throwing you're throwing out a lot of baby with that bathwater uh, as far as, as throwing yeah, exactly. out the entire enlightenment top to bottom because I, I I don't object to every single idea or or person who was part of the enlightenment like some of them really made some really good points I think sure yeah I mean and for how racist he was Voltaire had some great points exactly yeah I mean there there's a lot of yeah and I think that's you know I don't think that the this this strain of populism on the right that goes that far, you know, there, I mean, you're getting into neo-reactionary Mencius Molbug territory there. I don't think those have a chance in hell of actually being implemented in any meaningful way necessarily. But again, when a realignment happens, you should never say never. That's all I'm saying, yeah, I guess, well, is that I, it's something to keep in mind. And let, let me throw another, another variable uh, into the mix too, which is, um, you know, and this ties into the whole idea of potential imperial decline and collapse of the American system overall um, is the possibility that the United States will break up into various pieces, mm. either, you know, completely, uh, in, in the sense of like breaking up into a whole bunch of little independent sovereignties, or even if it happens, like there still is some sort of central government, but it becomes way more decentralized. That's another. That's, that's what I'm hoping yeah, for, honestly. That's, that's another possibility. Yeah. And in a situation like that, where there's either just total breakup or, vast amounts of, of devolution and, and decentralization, it's possible. And, you know, this might actually be, if it could be done in a relatively orderly and peaceful fashion, this might actually be one of the best solutions to our current problems, which is that, that different groups, like, for example, the neo-reactionaries, if they were to concentrate geographically in one area, right. they could do it on a small scale, right? They're, they're never going to take over the entire U.S. government. There's no way they're going to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think yeah, they'd like, be the first to admit yeah. that they're not going to be able to do that. And that's why they're not even, you know, really trying that tactic. But, but the possibility for them to like take over a particular little area and set up what they want to set up. And the same thing too with, with some of the, you know, more militant wokies and whatever that in that, in that situation, yeah. you know, you might end up with like the West Coast being a woke, a woke, oh, no. woke a theocracy, you know. <laughs> we just got a house. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> yeah, and people, people like you are going to have oh, to flee, man. flee as refugees, as many people already are to, to Texas or Florida or, or whatever like that. Yeah. Um, but there, there is this, and, and COVID really stomped on the gas pedal of the trend mm. of people uh, uh, moving within the country for cultural and ideological reasons, right? There's, you know, the the clearest cut example of this is the Free State Project trying to get libertarians to move to New Hampshire. But there's... How is that going, by the way? I've told people about that because a lot of people don't know about that. And I think it's fascinating because you, I think it was when you're interviewing the guy who started it or somebody involved yeah, yeah. in it. Yeah, it, it was a while back. But I remember he made the, um, the uh, not allusion, but the comparison to what Bernie Sanders yeah. did and his ilk back in the seventies, I believe, or sixties, right. whenever it was. And they completely changed the political demographics of Vermont because Vermont was like a 
basically just like a hard red state, right? Yeah, yeah. It, my understanding is it was it was very conservative, um, you know, state right there in the heart of New England because it's a very lightly populated rural yeah. state, and so and so then you had you know the movement that Bernie Sanders was a part of, which basically were a bunch of uh, New York City socialists who came in and because Vermont was so lightly populated, it didn't take that many of those people moving in to radically change the politics of the state. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, that wasn't as formally organized as the free state project, but it's the same basic idea. And right. Yeah. Vermont is such an interesting place. I've only been there there once briefly, but um, same. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's beautiful place. And Mm -hmm. what's really fascinating to me about Vermont is it's the only state I can think of that is simultaneously very rural and very blue. I don't think there's any other state in America that fits that description. I mean, technically, you could say California is kind of like that. We have a lot of agriculture here, but it's not blue yeah, but out the, there. It's very red. But the, but the vast majority of of the California population are concentrated in the larger metro areas, right? So yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and the, and the main like exports from California are culture and tech. So, you know, it's doesn't really matter that it's rural, it has rural in it, but it's significant. Is all yeah, I'm saying. Yeah. It's and, and, you know, I, I would say that, that Texas and Florida fall into the same category where all, all three of those states, California, Texas, and Florida have vast areas that are lightly populated, that are rural, that are either agricultural or even wilderness. Um, and mm-hmm. so there's huge stretches of all three of those states. You drive through it. You're like, this is a rural state. But of course, they yeah. also, all three states have giant metro areas. And, you know, the bulk of the population of each of those states is concentrated in, you know, a relatively small number of major metro areas and their suburbs. Whereas with, with a state like Vermont, that's really not the case. Like it gener- like it's, it's just little towns and agricultural areas and mountains. Has um the Free State Project been progressing? Oh yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Better term. And I'm I'm uh, friends with with some people that are involved in that. I've actually spoken um at a couple of different events in New Hampshire, Free State events. So right. yeah, I'm I'm a little bit plugged into to those folks. And it's doing better than it, I mean I shouldn't say better because it was doing badly, but it's, Here, is it is here's it my perception. I guess, and I haven't been yeah. up there since pre-COVID, but my perception is there's two things happening at once. One is good for the Free State Project and one is not. And that is, I think COVID did give a boost of people moving to New Hampshire. I think it's one of the top places people are moving to who are more libertarian, along with uh, Florida and Texas. Interesting. Uh, and Tennessee. Those those are kind of the big the big four that I hear about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah Nashville's yeah. a big yeah, one. Florida, yeah. Florida, Texas, yeah. Tennessee, and New Hampshire. Um, so I think there, COVID gave a boost to people fleeing to New Hampshire. But the problem is COVID also gave a boost to people fleeing to New Hampshire from places like New York and Connecticut and Massachusetts who are not libertarian, who they're moving because blue state policies have wrecked where they're living, but they, because they're so ideologically committed to the progressive ideology, their brain can't make the connection and go, why is it that if I live in New York city, for example, everything has gone to shit and I want to move to New Hampshire where everything seems a lot better. (laughs) They don't make the connection. It's because of the politics that I supported and voted for. And so they, they, (laughs) The, the 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 free staters just got to kill them with kindness. Gotta, they got to kill somehow, them with kindness. You know, keep those saying. people out. Build a build a wall. Yeah, or that too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and that and that's this gets to the thing that I the the idea of fragmentation that we were talking about. I I I have my skepticisms about individual uh, states forming. 
Like I, I agree with the notion that like in principle, that if a group of people want to establish their own state, especially when we exist in such a sort of chaotic time like this, I agree that if they want to establish their own state with their own values, that seems reasonable and they shouldn't be interfered with. And yes, I realize I sound like a Confederate, but what I'm saying is that there are people who just refuse. There are so many people. I I don't know if I'd say the majority, but there are so many people that would just refuse to ever admit that they have anything in common with someone they see as their enemy or their opponent that they see as their enemy. And the reason why I am skeptical of the notion of, you know, like micro states within the overall United States is I I've maybe it's just because I've been reading too much about Yugoslavia, but it just, it just, the alarm bells start going off in my head and I start thinking like, well, what if the neo-reactionary state needs some Lebensraum, if you will? What if the, you know, the Wokistani state needs, you know, or wants to expand its territory? Territorial expansion becomes a very real risk when you start to have things like that. So that's why I have my reservations about that and I'm more inclined towards the idea of greater decentralization and decoupling from the federal government because then like you still have the system intact ostensibly but it more matches the reality of our lived experience which is you know atomized through the internet essentially yeah well i mean when when countries break up and there's secession and whatever it can be ugly and and violent but it, it can also be you know, fairly orderly and peaceful and, and all that. It really just depends sure. on the, on the circumstances. What's the example well, of that? There, there's, there's several. Yeah. I was gonna say, I could think of a few, but I don't remember which ones they were. Was it the Czech Republic and Slovakia? Yeah, that's, was that relatively that's one. Orderly? My understanding is that was completely, you know, just peaceful, like referendums and stuff like that. And, you know, as far as I know, there was no violence in, involved in that. You know, there, there was no, nothing no, like no. the yeah. Balkans. I mean, there was yeah, there was at most like some heated yeah. debate. You know, yeah. some some politicians wanted to keep it together, others didn't. But um, and and another one, and I forget uh the the exact like time period this happened, but when when Norway seceded from Sweden because mm. Norway for a long time was was con- right. was part of the Swedish I Empire. Forgot about that, and I forget. I want to say it was the the nineteenth century, maybe, but I could be off on that. But yeah, when when Norway broke away from Sweden, again, my understanding is it was all purely through the political process, totally nonviolent. Nobody attacked each other. And as far as I know, Norway and Sweden, yeah, they have a little bit of rivalry with each other. But like it's it's like the same as like the rivalry that a Floridian and a Georgian might have in terms of like they're not going to fight it out (laughs) other than maybe if they get drunk watching the University of Florida play the University of Georgia football team like that's as far as it goes. The one thing that worries me, though, is then I start thinking, and I'm half joking, uh, that I'm thinking like, oh, man, but Minnesota Vikings fans versus Packers fans versus Bears fans, that shit gets yeah. violent. <laughs> so I don't know. That's what – and see, that's what I mean is like I, I see more – basically, I what I think how I look at it is that the one thing we should never accept – and I don't know. I'm going to sound like a total draconian statist here after just coming off and saying, look, in principle, it's okay for people to try to establish their own states. I just, I can't imagine anything good coming out of states being established based on religion or race. And if we allow for that, I almost guarantee, and this is just my cynicism, pessimism, really, I can almost guarantee conflicts will happen at that point if we let states separate by religion or race, because that's what happened in Yugoslavia in so many words. Yeah. Well, I, I think what increases the likelihood of a breakup of, of a bigger nation into smaller pieces, uh, the likelihood of it being relatively orderly and peaceful 
Uh, one is, of course, mm-hmm. having the political elites of the bigger system being okay, right, with it breaking up. You know, that's the big thing. Do, yeah. do you have a Lincoln yeah. who's willing to to deploy no? Uh, you know, a Lincoln who's willing to deploy unlimited violence to prevent the breakup versus a Gorbachev who ultimately, you know, lets it lets it go peacefully. Um, so there's that's one right. factor. The other factor in determining how peaceful and orderly secession is, is how neatly are the different groups grouped together? Because to me, right. when you look at Yugoslavia, mm-hmm. the biggest problem there, um, you know, aside from the, the centuries of, of hatred and whatever, is simply the fact that because that was part of a multi-ethnic empire for so long, the people were mixed right. together in this very haphazard sort of a way. So it wasn't like you could draw really neat, clear lines and say, oh, all the Serbs are in this one area. Let's draw a line around that. All the Croats are in this right. one area. Instead, everybody's mixed up. And so then – then they end up fighting each other because they're sorting themselves out. And like, if you've got a town that's half mm-hmm. one group and half the other group, and both of them want their people to be the only people in charge of that town, it's a zero sum game. Whereas basically what I'm saying is it would be good if before any attempt, if, if political breakup is going to be a thing that, that the U S goes through in the near future, it would be best if the self segregation of people that actually want to live together with each other, took place before the political partition happened. Mm-hmm. You know, so if people voluntarily right. group together based on these are people I actually want to live with and share a society and the government with and share and values only at that and point when that yeah. process is largely sorted itself out and there's not these messy situations, right, where there's like, you know, these dark blue islands in the middle of red states and vice versa that, you yeah. know, you have to have this the self-segregation taking place peacefully and voluntarily for however many years it takes for that to largely sort itself out because otherwise you end up with something like Yugoslavia breaking up or uh, another case where where it was pretty ugly uh, and lots of people died and, and mostly it's overlooked in the West is the partition of India and Pakistan because, you know, yeah, the right. majority in what became Pakistan were Muslim and the majority in, in what became India were, were Hindu, but there also were a lot of Hindus in Pakistan and vice versa. And so when partition happened, you had right. people on the wrong side of the line that you know, it, it, there was violence, there was, you know, people f- as refugees flooding back and forth and really messy. Whereas, you know, if I, and I don't know in that situation how you could possibly have done anything uh, to, to prevent that. But if yeah. somehow the, the British on their way out were like, okay, anybody, um, we're gonna leave and have partition in 10 years, letting you know. So if you're a Hindu in the Northwest, Please try to move, uh, and vice and vice versa. If you're a Muslim <laughs> yeah. in the the rest of of the country, um, you know, if there had been some way they could have done that and allowed that to play out in a peaceful, orderly way, people to move to to the other side of the line, and then say, "Boom! All right, now it's partition." Well, now you no longer, you know, they may still eventually over time, India and Pakistan may very well still have, you know, developed rivalry just as two nations next door to each other often do, but you wouldn't have had that nasty, ugly phase of partition happening the way it did. And furthermore, probably at least some of the continuing uh, hostility of India and Pakistan at each other ultimately goes back to partition and how much violence and bloodshed like that. I think that's a big part of why India and Pakistan still hate each other is, is because they're both still angry and bitter because both sides suffer greatly during, during the chaos and violence of partition. 
you could also add the story of uh, Palestine into sure. this pretty neatly. That's a messy um, one. Though that gets a little, yeah, and it gets a little more complicated. Uh, you know, my favorite political writer, Christopher Hitchens, was notorious throughout his entire career, even when he became a bit of a war hawk himself, of being vehemently opposed to any kind of partition because he saw the India-Pakistan partition, the uh, Israel-Palestine partition, and just all partitions as being uh, evidence of evil imperialism, essentially. And I don't think he was wrong, though with Palestine and uh, Israel, it gets a little more complicated because of historical circumstances involving what was happening to the Jews everywhere, especially in Russia and Eastern Europe, uh, necessitating them to get the hell out of Dodge. Um, that just morally complicates it, but also because a lot of the dissent that was very populist, funny enough, uh, from folks like Hajiman al-Husseini, who I covered in my ongoing series um, about the so-called Muslim Nazis that I am going back to, listeners. <laughs> I haven't forgotten about it. Uh, but yeah, like it was very much driven by ethnic hatred, by anti-Semitism, ironically, because they're all Sem- Semitic people, but anti-Jewish hatred. And I think when that took over, that basically rendered the role of the British not – irrelevant, but less relevant than, say, for example, India and Pakistan, I would think. Um, Though I do think the British could have definitely done a lot more to ease the transition. But again, I'm contradicting myself constantly because there's this other aspect of it. They did submit a plan, I believe it was a white paper, that was very favorable to the Arabs to the point where like the Zionists were very angry about this. I think it was in the late 30s. There's so many white papers and and uh, proposals that were put out back then but the um the one they put out though it was very favorable to the arabs very disfavorable to the jews and the arabs still rejected it so when that when i read about that i was and it was because of hajiman al-husseini so when i read that i was like well that's your fault now because you couldn't compromise so that's your fault but anyway that that is to say partition is a it can be very ugly especially if it's not like you're saying, pre-planned. And that's why I, I think because I've just seen so many examples of it not working and have just, you know, because of my own biases, too, uh, tuned out uh, the instances of it working, that I tend to be skeptical of the idea of a United States partition. Well, I, I think it it is more likely to be messier also. And when you're looking at both Israel-Palestine situation as well as the India uh, Pakistan situation. In both cases, these were places that were ruled by an outside alien empire in India for quite a right. long time, in Palestine for a while too. Sure. Um, and so th- there's another factor that made those, you know, partitions particularly nasty, which is in, in both those cases, the British had for many years been deliberately, and I would refer listeners to my episode I did uh, a while back on divide and conquer, divide and rule. The, Do it, guys. It's great. Yeah, it's one of the, <laughs> the episodes of the past couple of years that I've made that I'm I'm the most proud of. Um, and this was all the way back in summer of 2020, like right in the, right in the middle of, of George yeah. Floyd riots and everything. Um, and basically, you know, the British were deliberately not that divisions in India didn't already exist between, you know, Hindus and Muslims and other different groups right. or whatever, but the British deliberately amped those up while they were running they leaned it. into yeah, it they they did yeah they they they, they helped uh, emphasize the untouchable cast uh notions and things like that like they very much made things worse. yeah they, they very much were doing divide and conquer strategies in order to be able to rule this giant you know uh continent with a relatively light footprint of of english you know civil servants and and bureaucrats and soldiers 
Um, and so again, then they look to leave and it's sort of like what I was saying before, where when a leader of a democracy of a, of a modern democracy during wartime propagandizes his population, makes them bloodthirsty against the enemy. Then when it's time to end the war, you can't end the war with like a limited victory and be magnanimous to your enemy. You've got to go for total victory. Uh, even if that causes negative long-term consequences, because you can't flip the switch on your population that you now have frothing at the mouth. And it's the same deal. Yeah. The British are stoking divisions in, in India for, you know, over a century. And then they want to leave and they're like, Oh no, you know, we can't put the genie in the yeah. back of the bottle. We can't just snap our fingers and make all the divisions that we helped to amp up for 150 years. Suddenly, you know, everybody forgets about those it's- things. It's it's that Eric Andre Hannibal Burris meme. Oh, I don't know that. <laughs> you one. know where he? Oh, okay. Well, it's it's where Eric Andre like shoots Hannibal Burris and then turns around and looks at the camera, and it's always framed as, uh, like you know, in this case, it'd be Britain shooting or rather causing all this division oh, in India. Okay, and then yeah, they, yeah. No, I know the meme we're talking about. And yeah. Then, yeah, and then they leave, and it's like, why would the Indians and Pakistanis do yep. this? <laughs> yeah, no, it's. I think that's very so, true. And, and, and let me just just bring up a, a potentially disturbing possibility in the case of the United States. Could you argue that the the establishment, meaning both the the dominant you know federal government institutions as well as the corporate media and all that, have they been? pursuing a divide and rule strategy and wokeism is one of their main tools for doing this. And I think clearly they have. And so yeah. that makes it so I think it's at, at at the very least, it's completely reasonable hypothesis. Yeah. And that's me being as as like devil's advocate as possible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so again, you know, if the federal government were to say, all right, tomorrow we're disestablishing ourselves and the states are just going to be republics now. Um, you know, in states where there's a lot of, of mixture of red and blue, so to speak, to, to oversimplify a little bit, but you know, in states where there's, there's, uh, 50-50 of, of red and blue people, you know, not just politically, but culturally, or where there's things like, you know, the blue island of Austin in the middle of red Texas and things like that, might there be more potential for violence there in part as a legacy of the fact that the establishment mm-hmm. has been amping up divisions and and really you know doing divide and rule so heavily you can see that this is what makes me cynical about it because i mean it probably goes back to er, well i'm going to say it might have started with bush but definitely under obama and then definitely under trump the opposition those who dissented against the person who was elected increasingly started to act like and talk like they were subjects of an imperial master yeah. like the the rhetoric was shockingly similar to things like that and what's so fucked up about that frankly is we are all under the same imperial master in the sense that you know yes like the not my president bumper sticker is bs it's just it's just bs every president is your president even if you didn't vote for them it's what we're stuck with. And what disturbs me is that I think you're right. I think that there is an element of divide and rule going on that I think the media is only complicit in in as, mu- in as much as it allows it to keep the lights on because the media is not doing well economically, I should say, the mainstream media. So they're just trying to do everything they can to keep people engaged and to keep people engaged is to keep them at each other's throats, figuratively speaking. And I think the one thing that disturbs me so much about the idea of uh, because like i only see two possibilities i guess when i boil it down either a 
you have the federal government finally just saying, screw it and washing its hands and decentralizing the states and saying, like you're saying, you're all republics now. We're all in this together, but you're all republics now. And then that just causes this massive upheaval of social unrest and violence within the more contested states. Like my home state of Minnesota, Minneapolis is this little tiny blue island in the midst of red. Like there's going to be problems there. Uh, there's probably going to be problems here in California and maybe even in Florida. I don't know. I mean, maybe less so. But the point is, is that I think that decentralization, even though it's ideal, it wouldn't be conducted smartly. And that's what's worrisome to me. But then on the other hand, you have self-directed attempts to create your own republic outside of the United States. Secession, in other words. Texas has tried it. California had it on its ballot a couple of years back. And it when that happens, then you're just incentivizing a crackdown from the federal government, essentially, because I can't imagine any president, Trump, Biden, whoever, tolerating the idea of a state seceding largely because they hate the leadership in Washington. I don't see toleration of that whatsoever because there's – um I don't know if you're a Trekkie like I am. I'm a big Trek nerd and there's a line from Star Trek Deep Space Nine where there's this – uh the bad guy. His name is Goldicott. He's a Cardassian and he – says in one episode, while his forces are occupying the space station that's the center of the episode, he says to his subordinate or to somebody he works with, he said, it is not victory to just – you can't just beat an enemy. For it to be a victory, you have to let the enemy know why they were wrong to oppose you in the first place. And that's really how I see it turning out if people try to self-direct – their secession is the federal government's going to just have that little monologue in the back of its head, whether it knows it or not, and just going to crack down on it and keep you keep everybody as submitted as possible once they reconquer the territory that tried to secede. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to have to call it quits fairly soon because I've got a, a few arrogant um, errands I've got to run. Cause it's, uh, it's almost 4 PM here at my time on, on a Sunday afternoon. But, um, I did want to raise, uh, one more thing and it's potentially at least potentially a, a bright spot in all of this in terms of a realignment that potentially could lead in a direction that might be one of our best case scenarios. And that is, I don't know how much lately you've been following, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, she seems to have really gotten mm. red pilled on some things in the last few months. I think, um, because of just watching the Biden administration in action and, and how mm-hmm. much of a disaster everything has been, uh, she has basically publicly said that she regrets having endorsed Biden and supported him. She's frequently using words like the power elite to, to describe, mm-hmm. you know, what I would also use as a synonym for the establishment and things like that. You know, this thing that's not just the the government, it's, it's, you know, the dominant politicians, it's the deep state, it's the big corporations, it's Hollywood. It's, it's all, you know, kind of one thing. And she's been, I, I always, you know, have mixed feelings about her, but she's been sounding anyway, you know, when I'm not saying I necessarily a hundred percent fully trust her, but she's been sounding really good lately on Twitter and I don't know if you've if you had a chance to. She spoke at CPAC, and I know that blew my mind. I just and, found that out right before we got on yeah, this call. Yeah, and, and you know what? <laughs> I, I had been meaning to do it um, ever since she gave the speech. But earlier today, partly in preparation for this conversation, uh, I went and listened to to her speech. I watched her speech on YouTube, and her CPAC speech. You know, I definitely don't agree with everything she said, but on most things, big picture, 
she was really good. Like she was good on, on mm-hmm. free speech. She was good on, on, um, you know, opposing the COVID regime. She was good on, on defending, uh, the right of parents to have a say in their child's education content. I mean, she was really good on, on, um, you know, praising things like the bill of rights and the declaration of independence. Unlike Joe Biden, she actually correctly said the declaration of independence, um, intro, right. She didn't go, <laughs> yeah, all men and women create equal. Uh, you know, the thing, you know, she actually said, <laughs> Hey Jack, you know, yeah, the thing. <laughs> she, she actually was coherent. And I mean, she's usually a very good, a very good speaker and very good on TV, you know? Um, but anyway, I wonder if, if if she might not and maybe you know i should know better and and i'm not saying that i am like putting all of my hope and trust or whatever in her or anything like that but i'm saying that there's at least the possibility if she is honest uh about you know where where her beliefs are at right now and if she continues in that direction and you know that she might be able to bring together some of the best aspects and factions of the kind of counter establishment milieu and and bring them together in a over positive things like you know free speech Mm -hmm. and free thought and um, those sorts of things rather than bringing them together in terms of like let's create a theocracy or something like that yeah well and i think yeah i like this positive note that we can definitely close on because it will make me feel less despairing at just you know the lack of possibilities because like what i've been noticing with tulsi is that especially with this ukraine thing I was at first thinking that she was kind of flip-flopping a little bit, but what I'm sort of sensing in what she's doing, and I think this is conscious because this is this is not an insult. This is a compliment. I think she's trying to figure out her political identity in a new, unique way while still trying to remain positive and trying to bring as many people together as possible, like you're saying. And I think that that honestly could – mean that the next Teddy Roosevelt figure who capitalizes on the beginning of a realignment could be someone like Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah. Only in my book, at least uh, she, unless she's completely faking what she believes in right now, um, she would be far better <laughs> than, than Teddy oh, yeah. Roosevelt in, in almost every way. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is, of course. this is the one, one bright spot. And, and yeah, definitely, definitely. I would say to you and, and to anybody listening, go, go watch her CPAC speech. Um, on YouTube, it's really good. It's really good. I have to watch it. I just saw the article about it, and of course, it was Daily Beast that talked about it. So they were just snarky the whole way through. But I'll, I'll watch it and just keep my my mind open, obviously, because I think anybody who, again, it's like the issue that I have with populism in general. Which, by the way, I don't see it as an ideology. I see it as a tool, and that's why I don't think it has much. Um, sustainability in the long term. And I think Tulsi Gabbard is someone who recognizes that and utilizes populism as a tool for hopefully, if she's sincere, the sake of, you know, bridging gaps and creating unity. Now, who will accept that? Definitely not, you know, her former party, but, you know, maybe maybe one day. I don't know. I I anybody that comes at this with positivity and a lack of doom saying like what we've been doing for the last like two and a half hours or so. Uh, anybody who comes with this with positivity and ideas, I don't really care at this point what party they're in. I've never voted for a Republican. I know you don't vote. And, you know, I was, you know, I'm continuing on that. I'm going down that path myself at this point, but 
like if someone like, you know, her comes along and can provide us with a vision, something real and not just fakery, like a lot of presidents, pretty much all my presidents in my lifetime um, have been doing, then I think, you know, there's there's reason to not be super pessimistic about everything. Yeah. And, and one more. Um, I'm I actually might for the first time in many years vote this year in order mm. to cast a ballot to reelect Ron DeSantis as governor here. Mm. Um, and now I'll say this. I, I think DeSantis has been again. I don't agree with him on everything and whatever. But um, for this particular time period and what the issues have been, he's been about as good a, of a governor as as you can find. Um, and it's the opposite of my situation, as you know. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, I think he's, I think he's going to get reelected by a wide margin, actually, even though he got Probably. elected the first time by a very narrow margin. But I think he's going to get reelected for a variety of reasons by hands down, you know, maybe even a landslide. Um, I actually am not as positive on him being president. Um, I, I think he would be a worse president than, than he has been a governor for a variety of reasons. A lot of it to do with foreign policy. Um, mm. for, for president, as of right now, I would actually prefer Tulsi Gabbard to, to Ron DeSantis. I'd rather have DeSantis stay as governor of Florida. But, you know, he, he's also been, he has surprised me. I didn't think much of him when he got elected governor. Uh, he struck me as a typical Republican. Just um, typical blue pill Republican. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very kind of standard, yeah. you know. Um, and then when the COVID stuff hit, is when he really showed a genuine independence. He took a stand. I mean, that was, I, I don't, I mean, you know, it's funny when it comes to COVID and stuff, I tend to just hold my tongue on things. Cause I just, you know, I, I it, it's just, I don't feel like I have a firm enough grasp on stuff like that on like what good policy is necessarily. But as it became increasingly obvious, what bad policy was, it was kind of hard to deny that he was doing what I saw to be at least reasonable stuff. Yeah. He, he was basically following the the strategy laid out in the Great Barrington Declaration, and he was even consulting with with a, a lot of the people who wrote the Great Barrington. Like that—that's mm-hmm. the thing. What he did in terms of resisting the COVID policies of most other states, he wasn't just doing it like in a Trumpian way, where he's just doing it randomly or instinctively or whatever. He yeah. actually was doing what you would want someone to do, which was consulting with a variety of experts. And, um, you know, supposedly like he, he was reading, you know, the, the alternative medical journal, journal articles, questioning the lockdown strategies. Um, you know, he's apparently a very intelligent and well-read guy who, who, you know, not, not your typical politician. Uh, so, so he's, he's really impressed me, uh, over the last couple of years. Um, but again, I'm, I'm not as big on him for president. I, I would, I would support him for president if he publicly, uh, expressed a sea change in foreign policy views. You know, right. if, he, if he's yeah. like, you know, I've changed my mind about, because as far as I know, he's still a standard Republican on foreign policy. But if he came out like basically- Like a neocon, you mean? Yeah, I mean, not, not you know, not quite- not as, that hawkish. Not quite but, as bad yeah. as a full neocon, but like a standard kind of middle of the road Republican on foreign policy. Um, if he if he came out and, and basically, you know, said, I've changed my mind, I now am much more in line with like a Rand Paul or somebody like that, then- I'd say, okay, maybe this is our best option for now for a president. But. And that would be evidence of a realignment. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good spot to end right there, <laughs> I think. Absolutely. No, by, by the way, I just want to say, though, uh, maybe I'll keep this in. I don't know. But uh, I I have started to think because the more I was learning about Jackson, the more I was thinking, we really should bring back duels. Specifically yes. for elected officials. Daniele Bolelli, our buddy, is, you know, he's a fully on board with that, but on a global scale. So yeah. I say we should do it. Um, but anyway, that was, that, that was, that was awesome, man. We got two hours and 45 minutes. 
Not bad. It's uh, Joe Rogan length. Yeah. And uh, my battery didn't die. I kept looking at it because it was at one bar and it just, it's still going. So. Yeah, mine didn't either. 